I need to know everything Who in the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying But I like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche It's five and a horse, I'm ready for war I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost I need to know everything Hello and welcome to JK Plus One I am back with you I'm not in the Brooklyn bunker uh, I am not PTF But I'm happy to report that we've got PTF He's right into the He's, you know, sit right in the bridle We got him right where we want him now He's under control So there's no reason to worry about that anymore um, I'll let you know Maybe there's a situation later this year we'll have to put the blinkers on him or, or uh, you know, uh, something. Uh, but uh, it, it, maybe even, you know, look, I, <laughs> we might have to geld him if we can't get him under control. But it seems like everything's going the right direction. So everything should be good with PTF. Uh, thanks for joining us again this week. Um, I'm very excited uh, about the momentum the show's getting. Uh, Travis Stone last week obviously was a ton of fun. Uh, congratulations to him on his great start back at Churchill Downs. And, and the guests we've had already have been phenomenal. Richie Migliori, Gary Stevens, Michael McCarthy, Duke Matisse. Uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of everything, I think, this week. I'm going to give you a little bit of a better, a little bit of an owner, uh, and uh, a whole lot of intelligence. Uh, this, this guest that we're going to have this week is someone that uh, I'm lucky enough to call a friend and someone who uh, is a, is a, an innovator and someone who really pays attention to the ins and outs of this game from all facets. And he's one of those people on the list, my short list of people that I feel are uniquely uniquely qualified to talk about all things that are racing. Uh, like I said, he owns at a high level. He bets at a high level. He breeds. He's at the sales. Um, and so I, I think that he understands the game um, more than most because he's got so much experience on both sides. Um, it's also a, a, a ton of fun to hang out with as well. So I'm um, looking forward to this episode. I just want to remind everyone, if you don't subscribe, you know, I think that 90% of the people that listen to this show, they listen through their Apple podcast. So uh, you just go to that little purple thing that says podcast, you look up in the money media and you just subscribe to all the shows. You can turn on notifications where you, you, they let you know when one of our shows comes out. Obviously that helps us uh, with the downloads if, if you can do that. So make sure you do that. If you like a show, share it, interact with us. Uh, I don't have a voicemail number on me right now, but Pete's got it somewhere. So uh, leave us voicemails for the for the other shows. Um, and, and like I said, we appreciate your support on that. Um, look, I, this is a pretty long episode, so I, I'm going to stop ranting and raving. Um, and we'll we'll just get to our guest. And uh, I don't even know if I said his name yet, but I'm happy to have with us our friend, professor, owner, better, Marshall Graham. What's going on, man? Not much. Uh, glad to have racing back at Churchill Downs. Uh, you know, like uh, like everyone in two months into uh, social distancing and, uh, uh, you know, not doing much. Uh, I noticed that uh, this time last year I had made three trips to Oaklawn Park, a trip to Kentucky and a trip to Pimlico for the Preakness and a trip to San Antonio. And this year in the last two months have literally done nothing. So, uh, it's great to at least have racing. We had a good run at Oaklawn Park, and then uh, it was great to have Churchill back. No, absolutely, and and you know, obviously, with the the news that we just got that New York's coming back, and um, you know, obviously, it's uh, we've been fortunate enough to have the slight di- distraction with having you know Oaklawn running and Gulfstream uh, during all of this. But you're right, man. I'm just ready to get back to normal. I actually tweeted last night that people probably don't believe me, but like I miss TSA PreCheck and TSA. Like I miss. I miss rushing to the airport 
I miss getting mad that the line is long. I get mad. I'm, I miss that there's like some person in front of me who like won't take their belt off and, and they're slowing down the whole thing. Like I miss it. I want to go somewhere. I want to do something. So uh, hopefully sooner than later. No, I mean, my last trip was the NHC. And so uh, I got really sick uh, coming back from that. But uh, given that uh, uh, we learned that the people who also got sick, a bunch of us got sick there. Well, it wasn't uh, COVID-19. So, uh, but that was my last trip. And uh, I do think that, um, you know, the one positive part of it is that racing has been able to go on, that Oakland was able to continue its meet, that that's, uh, you know, bought some sense of normalcy to this. And I got to say, for me personally, as a horse player, um, I've never enjoyed racing as much as I did Oakland Park. We had big fields. It was dirt racing. We had a lot of route races. Um, it was super competitive. I think we had like 30, there was a stretch there. We had, you know, 30 plus races in a row with uh, where favorites went off at above even money. And so I sort of post Corona Oakland Park has been sort of for me, a high watermark as a horse player. And I was extremely tough as a horse owner, but, um, but it was a lot of fun. I think as tra- more tracks open up, I think we will enjoy, you know, these big fields at least temporarily. And I think that's, you know, that's so important. And this game is so tough already, but if you get big fields, it really helps mitigate the takeout. And so for those that aren't familiar, obviously uh, you are uh, the other half of the partnership uh, leadership, I guess I would call it with, with Clay Sanders on 10 strike racing. Um, how many wins do you think you guys had, or I'm sure you know how many wins you had. how many wins did you have this year at Oaklawn? How does that compare to what you guys have done in the past? We had eight wins at Oaklawn. Um, I'm almost certain it was, it was, I know we were, I was sort of hoping we'd get to 10, but we had eight wins at Oaklawn and it's, it was our best year, uh, at Oaklawn, uh, Warriors charge, uh, won the Razorback. Uh, we won some claiming races. We won some allowance races. And so it was a really strong meet for us. Now we had, we had one, we had, uh, one win post, you know, post sort of shutdown, Right. So, you know, after March 21st, we had one win and the racing again at that point got super competitive. But it was, a, again, a great meet for us, a great meet for our partners. Uh, you know, the, the high point being uh, Warriors Charge winning the Razorback. We had uh, 200 plus people in the winner's circle. There was a nice picture in the Blood Horse magazine of everyone in the winner's circle. Ironically, I was the only one not there. So the, the big day that Warriors Charge won, we have 35 plus partners on the horse. I was the one partner who couldn't make it because uh, the race is on President's Day and I was teaching. And so my job came first. I missed our big race. I missed uh, what would have been my last chance to make uh, to go to Oakland. And in a usual year, I'd make six or seven trips down there. This year I was there for opening day and that was it. So we'll obviously get to uh, your job, which I think is is people are it's uh, it's it's unique, I guess, in the place that you are. There's not a whole lot of economics professors that are owners and gamblers and uh, breeders and all of these things. So I think people find that interesting. We'll talk about that a little bit more, but while we're on warriors charge, um, obviously, well, first of all, you got to, you missed long on values win picture too. You're missing all the good ones. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it, it, I haven't been to a lot of our big wins and part of it is, I, I don't know whether I'd call it superstitious is not the quite, quite the right word. But I'm not big into traveling a long way, especially when expectations are high. Now, long on value had a conflict. Warriors Charge had a conflict. But I typically, when I have a horse run, I won't go. I won't make a a special trip out of it if the horse is even money or less. 
because nothing but disappointment can come from that. If you win, it's great. It's expected. But if you lose, especially, you know, it's a long drive back or a long flight back. If you lose, I remember we had a horse a couple of years ago uh, that uh, ran really well first out. And um, Clay went, I I didn't end up going back down to Oklahoma. It's an Arkansas bred, ran really first, ran really well first out, got stuck on a dead rail, contesting, contesting the pace, held on, and then, you know, won the battle but lost the war. And so... Um, I didn't go down for the horse's next race and Clay went down. The horse's name was Mountain Home. It was a homebred. And Clay went down. We had a big group there. They were basically standing outside the winner's circle because it was supposed to be coronation. The horse is one to five. And the horse runs up the track. Uh, the horse ended up having a breathing problem, something that, you know, just happens in horse racing. Uh, had a breathing problem, um, finished last at one to five. And, uh, you know, it's just uh, everyone was truly bummed out. And, uh, you know, I know for him, it was a long three hour drive home. I spent a lot of time on the phone with him talking about uh, the miserable experience of losing it one to five. And so it sort of is a, is a personal um, uh, creed I live by. I generally don't make special trips for even money or less. Now, Warriors Charge, I'm pretty sure that I'm not speaking out of school when I say this. He's he's the best horse you guys have ever had, right? Uh, well, he's not a grade one winner. So you were part of long on value and long on value was a grade one winner. So that I would, I would say that long on value would be the best, but long on value we sort of had as a, you know, we, we bought at a sale. He was already established when we had bought him. Um, so it's kind of a different transaction as a horse that we've had and gone through the whole process with that a majority of our partners have been involved with. Yeah. It's clearly warriors charge. It's clearly warriors charge at this point. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, I, I mean, I obviously know the answer to this question, but do you guys have any ideas of what, what do you think will be next with, with Warriors Charge? Well, I think one thing that's interesting about this racing year is the fact that, you know, a lot of the smaller races, I think, will fall by the wayside. So a lot of the sort of grade twos or grade threes that have big purses at minor tracks just might not happen. Races like the Cornhusker. Uh, which, you know, is in the past is a $300,000. I think it's a grade three or grade two race at Prairie Meadows. I think a lot of the minor tracks won't have their minor stakes. And so it's going to force, you know, us and owners of, uh, you know, stakes, you know, owners of nicer stakes horses to face one another many times before the Breeders' Cup. And so, you know, our options are basically the the Gold Cup, the San Diego Gold Cup, the um, Stephen Foster or the Met Mile. So I think those are the kind of the three major races uh, before Saratoga opens up. So I think at this point, we are leaning towards the Met Mile. I believe the Met Mile will be July 4th. Um, and uh, and I'm sure the race is going to be loaded. If we stayed for the Stephen Foster, uh, Tom's Day Todd is likely to run there. And that's a grade two race in part. Uh, we're trying to make Warriors charge a stallion and uh, we need a grade one win to, uh, to, you know, to, uh, to help his page, especially given he's a Munnings, which the Munnings things is the Munnings thing is a, somewhat of a positive and a negative Munnings is in, in undecorated sire, but very, uh, you know, very hot right now. His stallion fee is rising. Uh, it's at 40 grand and he covers lots of mares. And so if we could be uh, the alternative to Munnings, as is one of his, most successful sons, uh, that would be ideal. But to do so, we need a grade one win. And so, you know, we'll, we are likely at this point looking at the Met Mile, I believe will be run 
will be run July 4th, but obviously that's a lot to have to see how the horse trains and kind of what Brad, Liz, Clay, all of us think um, about what would be the best option. But that's where we lean. So how, you know, I'm curious to hear the story on how you started off, you know, claiming your first horse. And then now we're having a conversation about making a stallion and, and, you know, being a, a top three or four choice in a grade one. And I mean, what was your, it seemed like a long journey and winning titles at parks. Like how did you get involved in the game? Uh, even, even as far back as, as a kid, how did you get interested in it? You know, spending a lot of time in Texas and DC, how, how did you get interested in racing? And then how did that turn into uh, being the owner and, and, and better? Well, the, so if we go back to the start, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and uh, and it's sort of an, an odd thing is is that, that Washington, D.C., growing up there in the city, we did not have ESPN. Now, that may seem like a small thing, right? But uh, um, cable television came to Washington, D.C. very late. We did not have dis- district cable vision. We did not have cable until 1989, until I was in 10th grade. And so growing up, I loved sports, but my access to sports was the local stations. And NBC, we lived right next to NBC, and it broadcast over our house. And so literally, it was watching sports on CBS and ABC. And so my access to sports was the newspaper and the three minutes of sports that would be on the the, uh, local news at night. And so, uh, you know, back then, you only got a couple football games. Uh, basketball game here or there. Uh, there just wasn't a lot. And I was, I loved sports. And I remember going over to other kids' houses who had ESPN and just sitting there and watching whatever was on, whether it's Australian rules football or motorcycle racing. Uh, I would just watch it like, uh, um, you know, it would be the thing to watch regardless of what they were showing. So I got, I read the local sports page. I devoured it. And I was very in the numbers and stats and, and was sort of a baseball fan, even though I didn't find baseball particularly exciting. Um, I was sort of a baseball fan because of the statistics. I think a lot of young kids get into baseball because of the stats. And I noticed that there was basically two pages in the Washington Post post devoted to horse racing. Uh, they published all the charts. So the full charts were in the newspaper from whatever track was running, whether it was Bowie or Laurel or Pimlico. They had selections that were given. They had harness racing results. They even put in the uh, the payouts at Charlestown, which is two hours away from D.C. And Andy Beyer was uh, the the uh, one of the sports riders, one of the uh, horse racing riders. He wasn't really the horse racing beat rider, but he'd write about handicapping. He'd write about the major stakes events. And I started reading his columns, and and Beyer is, you know, not only an incredible innovator uh, and, and, and teacher of the speed figures and, you know, not only incredible handicapper, um, but an amazing writer. He's just a phenomenal writer. And so it was from reading the sports page that, that, you know, I saw all these statistics that was horse racing, all these charts. And I started learning about uh, learning from uh, um, ha- learning about handicapping by reading Byers column. At that point, I went to the bookstore. I bought Picking Winners. I bought The Winning Horse Player. I bought a couple of other horse racing books. I'm, I'm in about seventh or eighth grade at this point. And um, I just read more and more about uh, about horse racing. I started trying when I had a chance to buy the racing form. Back then, the racing form was $2. And they would carry it at the local drugstore, which is about an, a mile away. And so, you know, my parents both worked. 
uh, especially in the summers, I, my brother and I had a lot of free time. And so I would, uh, you know, grab $2, walk down to people's drugstore, buy the racing form, bring it back, uh, and start handicapping, coming up with different types of, uh, betting systems, uh, tried a little bit of making my own speed figures, even though I didn't have enough, uh, sort of data to work with. I wasn't buying the, I would buy the form maybe if I were lucky once, uh, every week or so. And, uh, that's how I kind of got hooked. And so when, when we eventually did get, uh, cable TV, I'd record every race that was on. Um, I got really into racing in 1987. And I remember that was a big year because it, because it was Ali Sheba and bet twice and Gulch and gone West. It was a really terrific crop of horses, even, um, uh, you know, even there are great sprinters like Groovy, who I guess was in the crop before, but it was a terrific crop of horses. And I, I followed racing from there. Uh, I, my brother and I went out and made our first bet at Pimlico. I remember driving to Pimlico uh, when I was 18 and placing a bet on a horse named Quail Ridge Swap place. And the uh, he placed. It was a, a, a it, was, it was a ridiculous bet, and we didn't quite know what we were doing, but we we hit our bet and. Uh, enjoyed our, our time at the track. And, uh, and from, from there, I was kind of hooked. Um, at what point did you, uh, buy your first horse or were you involved with your first horse? I mean, was it a claim? Was that, did you buy it? You know, I guess partnerships probably didn't happen as often back then. What was your, your first horse? So in, I was at a wedding and it was 2009 and I'd been following, uh, I'd been following, uh, um, this mayor is Philly named Aunt Dot Dot. I guess she's a mayor, six-year-old mayor named Aunt Dot Dot. I liked her female family. It was pretty nice, pretty far back. It went back to Chris Everett. Um, uh, and so it was the family of uh, um, some pretty nice horses. Um, and so, uh, you know, I thought, and this is sort of crazy, I thought, you know, when she, when she was running for $5,000 at parks that winter, I thought, that uh, of getting a group together and claiming her and maybe making her a broodmare, which is insanity in retrospect. And I had a friend, another professor, professor at East Carolina, who I was a betting buddy with, who had a friend who was at parks or at Philadelphia park. Uh, he was uh, a former uh, golf coach at uh, the university of Pennsylvania, but had uh, had uh, left that position was now selling supplements on the backside at parks. And so he hooked me up with a trainer named Don White and Don dropped the claim for us on Aunt Dot Dot. So I was at this wedding. I convinced one of my buddies, Todd Kaysen, to go in with me on this mare. Uh, I convinced my brother to go in. And so we split it three ways and we dropped the claim in for $5,000. And, um, you know, we thought we'd race her for a while and then breed her if we got her. Didn't know at all what we were doing. And we won a three-way shake. And I remember being very excited. We, we got our mare. And uh, someone else had dropped on her and also wanted her as a brood mare. And they offered us $10,000 on the spot. So, you know, we turned it down. In retrospect, crazy decision. In retrospect, if, if I claim a horse for five and you offer me 10, I'm almost certainly taking that money. And, um, you know, I, I could have made $5,000. We could have split that money among the three of us and walked away forever. But uh, we decided to keep the horse. We raced her a few times. Uh, we were worried about her being claimed off of us. So instead of running her back for $7,500, we were running her for $16,000. Um, she finished second a few times, but uh, ultimately was just outclassed. And so at that point, we retired to breed her. We, again, had no idea what we were doing uh, we bred her first to Giacomo, 
who at that point was uh, um, in his uh, in his second or third year. We got to him for five grand. We had the, our first foal was a, a colt named Jaka Khan, who won a few races for us. And then uh, our second foal was named Aunt Ellipsis by Successful Appeal, and she was a stakes winner. Now, regrettably, she was not a stakes winner for us. She uh, was claimed off us first out for Maiden 25, and then the guy who took her won a couple stakes races for us. The nice thing is she was a Pennsylvania bred. I was getting Breeders' Awards, and so I was still rooting her on. But it was the first stakes winner I'd ever bred, but it, it was uh, um, not a horse that uh, I ended up owning. Uh, in, hindsight, should you, in hindsight, should you have run her for 25? Well, you know, we just didn't know how good she was, and we thought uh, we thought in part we could get away with it. Uh, and if you run a horse for 25 or less at parks, they're eligible for starter races. And so uh, it's nice to have that eligibility. And uh, we figured no one would take her, right? No one would take her first out. So there's nothing in her form that indicated dropping 25 grand, grand on her. But Keith LeBaron uh, made a very astute claim and they made a lot. I mean, she won $220,000 for them. And so um, a tiff of my cat cap to them and I got a ton of breeders awards for it. So I, uh, I you know, I still, um, you know, while disappointing not to have had her run in my silks, um, uh, you know, I still made, I still made out very well on breeders awards. And then a couple of foals later, we had dot matrix and dot matrix is still running. Uh, he's a, a grade three winner now. Uh, he's a New York bred. So we bred it at one, at some point we decided to breed the Freud. We, you know, I still think Freud is one of the best value stallions out there. And uh, uh, Dot Matrix still still runs uh, for us and uh, finished, uh, won the Conley Turf Cup, the grade three Conley Turf Cup to become a, a graded stakes winner. And so I've now uh, uh, bred a graded stakes winner. It's very exciting. And that's awesome. And then, and he's, you know, he's made 600000 So that little 5000 you guys put up at the wedding seems to have worked out all right. Yeah, it uh, it it did it did work out well. It was totally luck. Um, breeding is a uh, I'm breeding some uh, a tough game, and uh, you know I've mostly been involved in breeding to race, and just a lot of things have to go right for it to work out. And the success that I've had breeding, uh, you know, with with these guys, with Dot Matrix, and with Analypsis, or with Clay Sanders uh, breeding Critical Value. A lot of that's been luck. I mean, there's really no no way around that. There's no brilliant insight. I mean, you, you look at pedigree. You know, we hope to you know breed to some to stallion on the rise, but uh, in most cases, it's just you know the horses have turned out to be good, and we've turned out to to hold and t- to hold some pretty good uh, uh, broodmares who are basically claimers when they ran for us. So is, is your, is your reasoning for spending so much time at parks? And obviously you won a couple of owners titles there is the reason that you were at parks, just luck of the draw where you ended up dropping that first claim and just how you knew and who you knew, or was there, was it more strategic as to why you were at parks? And, and then also, if you don't mind mentioning, obviously Pennsylvania is having some issues as, as it pertains to racing. Do you foresee yourself being there uh, in, in the future? So the, first part of the question is it was luck of the draw. So, um, you know, I, I had the connection, I had claimed aunt dot dot. I suddenly had horses with Don white. Uh, and so, um, and so, you know, I ended up claiming a couple more horses, didn't have much success. Um, but, uh, but parks sort of 
from where we were in 2009, 2010 to even now, it was a place that had a very good purse structure. It has a very nice condition book with mid and low level claimers, as well as some nice allowance races. It's very well located. You can ship from parks to Laurel, to Delaware, to New York if you have a nice horse. And so um, it was a track where you didn't have to be a multimillionaire to compete as an owner, right? They had, a, again, a nice claiming structure to where, you know, you can claim a horse for 10. Uh, uh, and, you know, they have races all the way down from uh, nickels all the way up to 25s. And uh, again, it's in a great location. So if, if I were starting now, um, it's a place that fits my budget fairly well. Um, it isn't the most competitive racing but um, but you can find an outlet for your horse if it doesn't fit. If your horse is too cheap, you can run the horse at Penn National. And if your horse is nicer, you can run the horse in New York. And so its location was one of the draws um, and, uh, um, you know, have had a lot of success there um, over, uh, you know, over, over a fairly prolonged period of time. And um, and kind of it's always been kind of what I think of as home. Right when I think of claiming a horse, I think about how it will fit in the pen, in the park's condition book. Right, I know they write races out to non-winners of four lifetimes. So I often, like claiming a horse that's a non-winners of you know that's that's a non-winners of four, which they don't really write anywhere else, and taking up the parks to win that race. It has the starter twenty-five. Uh, that's a starter twenty-five non-winners of four or non-winners of a, a allowance a other than. And so I'll look for horses that haven't won their A of the then of the run for 20 can go up there and win that starter race and then win the A of the then. So it's condition book fits very well. The competition's really good and you can compete there on a reasonable budget. Now, did you think, do you think that your handicapping helped you be a better owner or your owning made you a better handicapper you know i'm asking you to, to pick chicken or egg but um i'm assuming you have a lean one way or the other well i think they both really helped each other i i would say that when before i owned horses i didn't understand the condition book at all so you know i mostly was a speed figure guy um until i owned horses i would look at all sorts of different speed figures the thoroughgraphs the sheets um buyers um, but I was, you know, basically would look for the, you know, who was the fastest horse and then, you know, think a little bit about trip and bias. But the condition book really opened my ideas to this notion of class and especially horses as they move from maiden to non-orders of two to non-orders of three to non-orders of four, how big those jumps might be, right? When you win a non-orders of two, it's a huge jump to a non-orders of three. So for example, a race that's like a $16,000 non-orders of two, a horse that wins that race and then drops into a 7,500 non-winners of three, well, he might not be the classiest horse. It's really not a drop, right? From 16,000 to 7,500 may look like a drop. It's a drop in claim price, but he's now going against horses that have won twice. And so going from non-winners of two to non-winners of three is a really big jump. We often talk about the biggest jump is from maiden to winners. Well, it's true, but then going from non-winners of two to non-winners of three is a big jump, less subtle, but it's still there. And so, um, you know, I found I found that class is very important, and I often try to think about that in evaluating races. What is the intent of the owner and trainer here? You know, is this horse just uh, you know running big numbers because it's been beating up on lousy competition, and it is now moving up in class where we'll be more challenged on the lead and will uh, you know face a lot more adversity. 
So I became in part more of a class handicapper as a result, something I'd never really considered. Um, it, uh, so I would say that that part uh, of of um, owning has affected my handicapping. And so I think the direction of owning has affected my handicapping more than vice versa. Um, when I think about claiming a horse, I think about things like what are the conditions that exist for this horse, right? If I don't tend to like claiming open horses because generally they are what they are. If you're buying a horse, that's an open $25,000 horse that's run through its conditions and doesn't have like any of its allowance race conditions. It typically is what it is unless you're doing something different, like stretching the horse out or switching surfaces. So what I'd like to look for is horses that have conditions because uh, conditions are value, very valuable. Those races tend to go. You can work your way up can, up the conditions ladder. And then, uh, and then when the horse is an open horse, let the horse go. Let someone else claim the horse. Um, so that's the one thing I think about when claiming. The other thing I think about is, is the horse running at the right distance uh, and on the right surface? And so I really like claiming horses that have been sprinting, that are meant to be routers, that have been running on the turf, that are meant to be dirt horses. Um, I really think about those type of things. Not necessarily applicable to handicapping, but, um, you know, my favorite angle, I would, in many ways, maybe my only angle um, since I've owned 12 of these um, is uh, I love claiming looking at luckies that have either been sprinting or been on the turf, right? Because I believe he's a true dirt router. I've claimed 12 of them. Uh, the horse I have, Lucky Move, right now, that's a New York bred stakes horse, um, is an example of that. A horse that has really thrived going long, going two turns at Saratoga. The horse really needs two turns and really needs two turns on the dirt. And so, uh, you know, those are the kinds of things I think about when claiming. And, uh, and so that's a little bit different than handicapping. I'm much more concerned not about, you know, is the horse going to win the particular race or how fast the horse is in this particular race. It is how fast this horse is in the particular condition that I want to run it in. We got to figure out what your ROI is on looking at luckies. <laughs> well, they're bit, looking at luckies and munnings. I mean, that's, uh, I feel like I owe everything. Um, I feel like I, I, I owe everything to them, but if there's uh even my trainers know it, that they will, uh, they'll, uh, uh, um, they'll tech as soon as they see a looking at lucky, they'll throw it at me to claim. So if they want, uh, I use a number of different claim, uh, trainers now. And so it's whoever first sees that looking at lucky is the one who generally gets the, uh, uh, generally gets the nod. Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I know, bet you a lot of breeders are happy because I know, I know that at sales, you Liz Crow always goes to look at the looking at luckies and looking at the, uh, at the Munnings. So it, the, the best part about that is that all of those consigners are like, well, Liz Crow is by here and look at this, looking at lucky. So their prices have probably been driven up just from, uh, from sending Liz over there with the success she's had. Well, our newest group of horses are two-year-olds this year. We have a looking at Lucky and we have three Munnings. So we have nine two-year-olds and um, three of them are Munnings. And so, you know, we like, I mean, they're both very reasonable stallions. Uh, uh, and they can throw racehorses. They can throw runnings, runners. Looking at Luckies, they tend to get better as they get older and they tend to get better routing. And so they're less appreciated um, in the sales ring, which is really sort of insane. I mean, looking at Lucky stands for less than 25 and he's thrown a Derby winner and a Breeders' Cup Classic winner um, and gets you a dirt route horse. They just take a little longer to mature. And then Munnings just throws real, real competitors. Um, uh, they tend to be sprinters. Uh, it, it, uh, Warriors Charge tends, is the anomaly, right? Uh, Munnings average winning distance 
is uh, 6.3 furlongs and a majority, uh, you know, 85% of his runners win sprinting and Warriors charge has been the aberration. Now he's had a few uh, sort of since then in more recent crops, he's gotten better mares like finite who've been able to go right of ground, but, uh, but he's extremely reliable and, and, you know, clay and I, uh, muddings on the mud or auto bets. I do want to, I want to talk a little bit about your, uh, the two-year-olds, the, the nine two-year-olds you have now and just kind of how you're, and it's not a syndication. It's a it's a partnership. And I want you to elaborate on that. But before we get too far away from it, I do want you to uh is you know as quickly as you'd like explain the issue that's happening in Pennsylvania for people that might not be aware of it, because obviously it uh it impacts you um and, and your involvement at parks and having as many horses and that you know, like you said, that's kind of home. So can you explain to everyone who might not be familiar what the issue is and what resolutions there could be? Well, right now, um, the governor is is low to reopen parks, even as racing has started to occur across the country. Uh, parks is in Ben Salem, which is in Bucks County, which is near Philadelphia. Um, and for racing to resume, he wants the racetracks in the state to be in the green zone. And parks will really never get to the green zone. I just it it, it seems unforeseeable um, uh, that that uh, that Philadelphia will get in the green zone before a vaccine. Right. So uh, but even the racetracks that like Prescott that are very near being in the green zone, he's not very motivated to open. And so part of the problem for parks is in the racetracks in Pennsylvania is they are so reliant on the slots money and they get 85 percent of their purses from slots. And so you know, while the state of the game has generally been very good there, the purse has been very good, the racing has been very competitive. The shock to the uh, industry uh, and the shock to the states through coronavirus has sort of shown us how um, fragile our model is, right? Uh, we've been propped up by slot machines. Uh, uh, the track, the, uh, the ownership group that owns parks, they started out owning the racetrack, Philadelphia Park. And then they were given the ability to open a casino by the state. Well, all of a sudden they're making up, they're making so much money in the casino. They don't really care about racing. And so they're actually making the horsemen pay to keep the track open for training. And so um, it's a real bad situation there. We can't ship out. We can't ship in. In some ways we're being, well, in some ways we're being held hostage at the racetrack. So as other tracks open, if we ship out, we're not going to be able to return. Now, there have been some rumors that they're going to loosen up on that. But it, it just is a situation where the, um, the, goals of the, uh, the goals of the track operator, in this case the casino, aren't aligned with the horsemen. And the horsemen have become reliant on, the, uh, on slots revenue. And it's a, it's a story that's repeated throughout this country, parks, and Pennsylvania racing may be the most reliant on slots money, but slots money plays an important role in purses in Kentucky, in Arkansas, in New York, in Maryland. And um, at some point, uh, when government when governments face budget crises, they want to grab that money. Even before the uh, the COVID uh, crisis, uh, while we're at the NHC actually is when this occurred is the governor tried to grab back at the, uh, um, at the slots, uh, the slots earmarks that were intended for the Pennsylvania racetracks. And so this is a battle before 
the crisis occurred. Now the crisis gives the governor, um, you know, something to point to, right? And, and it's it's politically tough. It's a politically tough sell, right? Uh, when a you know state government is struggling to make their budget, when they want to spend money on education, it sounds, uh, you know, in terms of a soundbite, hey. We're giving money to all these horsemen, and this money could be used elsewhere. It could be used for education. It could be used for our schools. And so, um, so it's a tricky position to be in, and um, and it makes you worry about some of these tracks' future. It really makes me worried about Pennsylvania's racing's future. So it's not only that we have a short-term pr- problem, but we also have a long-term problem. I always, I always thought we had a long-term problem. It's it's the fact that now. It's short term. Now we might not be racing in Pennsylvania until July, August, September. And, um, you know, my loyalty there is to my trainer, Carlos Guerrero. We've been together a long time. I know his exercise rider, his grooms, uh, his hot walkers. I know them very well. Every year when I go up, we have a big picnic. Um, uh, Jose and Philemon are his two exercise riders who've been with him for a decade. Um, And, you know, it's not easy for everyone just to pick up and move to a different racetrack, right? A lot of people live at the racetrack. And so the sort of idea that I could move my horses from parks to another trainer, well, it leaves all those people without jobs. Or the idea that Carlos can move his whole operation elsewhere, well, that creates problems as well. So, you know, it's one thing if we were planning ahead of this for a year from now, but it's another thing that the fact that it's affecting us right now. And uh, I mean, that's true for all the horsemen involved at parks and really everywhere else, right. While we weren't racing, but, um, how, how much of the issue is the individual himself, the governor, or is it just the Pennsylvania government or is it, is a lot of this kind of cooked up by the governor? And and then if that's the, if that is the case, what, what is it? When's he up for reelection? Is he just, is he a lock to just continue to win, keep that seat or how does that work? So he's not running for reelection. He's been term limited out. And so, uh, in many ways, that makes it more challenging, right? It makes it more challenging for the horsemen to uh, uh, to get their voice heard. And so, um, so yeah, I, I just, I think that, um, you know, I don't know how, I, I don't, I don't know how, if this is, you know, basically a line in the sand that he's drawn or whether he is just taking a more cautious approach than uh, governors in different states. But I think, you know, if, if, you know, as we grapple with as a nation, uh, you know, opening up, you know, opening back up for business uh, when he already has, uh, you know, when he's already, you know, in battle with the horsemen over uh, over the um, the purses and the slots money at the casinos, uh, it's easy for um, easy for him to to leave them closed. Furthermore, I mean, the, the casinos are nowhere near opening anyway. And so. Um, and so this way, it's just it's good cover anyway. Well, the casinos aren't open, so you don't have to open the racetrack. And I tell you what, there's there to me, there's nothing dirtier than a casino. Um, when I, you know, in college, you know, and we all, you know, went through phases of poker. I'd play poker in college, and like I just every time I would go to the restroom, I'd think to myself, how dirty are all of those chips you're touching? And it like it's still to this day when I go to Vegas, I wash my hands in Vegas so much, like I just can't it just drives me nuts thinking about like all that's how dirty everything is. Um, you got to think that like casinos are going to be like, they're going to be one of the last things to be able to open again. Well, Oaklawn's casino reopened, Oaklawn and Southland reopened on Monday. Um, and the way they have done it is you have to wear a mask 
there you can't um, you have to practice social distancing. And so it's every other it's every other seat at a blackjack table. It's uh, every other slot machine. Uh, it's uh, only a, a small group of people in front of a craps table. And uh, they have all sorts of other things involved in terms of, you know, what your visit to a casino would be like, 25% capacity. Uh, and it just sounds miserable. I mean, it just, it it doesn't, you know, I, I like casinos. I think casinos are fun. I like the energy that comes from being at a craps table or being at a blackjack table. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to the, to the noises and the lights. Uh, I get a lot of energy when I walk into a casino and it's all lit up. Uh, and it's crowded. And I just can't imagine, you know, I just can't imagine going to a casino, at least in this startup phase, right? I mean, where no, it, it doesn't it sound fun at all to sit <laughs> behind plexiglass or to wear a mask uh, and uh, and play and play blackjack. Yeah, no, I, I can't. You know, speaking of masks, you guys should get some 10 strike masks made, by the way. I'll, I'll, uh, I'll wear one. Um, Absolutely. We totally need to do that. That's a great idea. All right. So speaking of 10 strikes, so I, I wanted to, to, I wanted you to get that Pennsylvania thing out because I wanted people to understand what was going on there and, and be aware. Um, and part of this podcast will eventually pivot to, to something that uh, the re- one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here is because I think there's two individuals in this world that are uniquely qualified to talk about all things, right? Uh, maybe three. Um, I think that Paul Matisse is one of those. I think Craig Burnick is one of those. And and I, I put you in that category as well as someone who bets at a high level, who owns at a high level, sa- you know, sales. Um, I know you're not the biggest breeding operation, but you understand it. You claim. So I just feel like, you know, someone who understands all facets of it is, is an important part of the puzzle because usually we have people that are speaking out on their side. You have horsemen's groups that are defending horsemen's groups. You have betters who are defending betters and you have uh, trainers defending trainers, jockeys, jockeys, and like not mixing it all together. So I, I do want this conversation to, to people to understand that the insight that I believe that, that you can offer Um but before we get to that, I wanted to talk a little bit about Ten Strike because um, I, I find Ten Strike to be unique in a couple of ways, and, and, the, and the way that I find it to be the most unique is that you guys don't, you and Clay, do not make money off of Ten Strike. This is not a typical syndication where there's a markup and there's a this and there's a that, and then you guys take this off the back end so that you can get that on the front end and that on the end. It's literally just an opportunity for you guys that are to diversify, to have uh, seven good horses instead of one good horse. And um, I wanted you to talk, and, I, and the best part about it is, is like, and Pete and I have even tried at times to like, overly promote you guys. And, and you don't really want it that way. You want it word of mouth. You want it, a person who had a good experience to share their good experience. Tell me a little bit about the model behind 10 strike. Um, and, and the first, and you can, if you want to start with the first horse that you and clay claimed and then how that turned into uh to, to, to 10 strike that it is today that has warriors charge that uh, will be running in big races for the rest of the year. Yeah. So clay and I, it does go really back to that. Clay and I got into racing about the same time. I had actually met clay, um, uh, Clay is a, a, a CFA and is a bond researcher at uh, FTN Financial, which is a branch of First Tennessee Bank. And so I gave a speech to the CFAs um, on the state of the economy. And, you know, when I was, I don't know, 2000, uh, 
six, 2007. About 15 years ago, I used to do the, the, um, the rubber chicken circuit. I would speak at Rotary Clubs or uh, whoever invite me, I'd go speak about the economy. I had no idea what I was talking about. I still don't. But uh, if anyone says they do, they're lying. Um, and so I, I, I gave a speech to his group. And then at some point, um, uh, Clay saw me. I was uh, a, the same buddy of mine I talked about earlier who's a professor at East Carolina. He won a contest. Uh, they were promoting the book Bet with the Best that DRF had uh, released. They had released a Bet with the Best 2. And he had bought that book and was entered in a drawing to have lunch with Steve Christ and Mike Watchmaker. And so he invited me up to, uh, this is my friend from East Carolina, invited me up to New York to go to that lunch and to go to the races at Belmont. And so I ended up having my picture on the front page of the DRF website with my buddy from East Carolina and with Steve Chris and Mike Watchmaker. And so first off, for me, I was meeting a couple of legends in the game. Um, I've always thought, though, you know, I think of Steve Chris and Andy Byers being two of my biggest influences uh, in the game. And so Clay is a horse player, you know, sees that picture, says, I know that guy, contacts me. And look, when you are a, interested in racing, um, especially if you live in an area without racing, we're in Memphis, Tennessee. There's a dog track across the river. It's three hours from Oakland Park. It's six, uh, five or six hours from Churchill Downs. So when you meet someone who's interested in racing, you're suddenly fast friends. So Clay and I were fast friends after that. He um, and a few of his partners uh, had uh, ended up uh, uh, buying a few horses that went to Kenny McPeak. I had bought Aunt Dot Dot and was claiming a few horses. And so uh, uh, we decided at, uh, at some point to join forces. At that time, and I think it was 2010, uh, Mammoth Park uh, had this sort of special meet with giant purses. I don't, I don't even, you know, it, it's, been, it's been a decade. And so I don't even recall what had happened to, to create this model where the purse structure was, was what it was. But they were running $5,000 claimers for $50,000 purses. And so it was just a, a free-for-all. I mean, it was, you would drop on a horse and there'd be 15-way shake. And if you get the horse, it was like a, a free roll. If you got the horse, then you run it for the same level and someone else would grab the horse. And um, you couldn't, uh, uh, as an owner, you really couldn't lose there because it was just, if you ended up getting a horse and winning one of those 15-way shakes, you were going to be running it and someone else would get the horse from you. And you get these free shots, at these giant purses. I don't know if it was really the most well thought out thing, but um, it uh, uh, we ended up getting hooked up with a trainer named Bobby DeBona there. And uh, we dropped on a horse together named River Fancy. At that time, I was still, a, you know, really into pedigree. And so um, and didn't really understand the conditions book. So I was in the pedigree, didn't understand the conditions book. She hadn't run for nine months. She had a really nice female family. Uh, even though I think she was by Congaree, so didn't have the greatest of sires, but had a nice female family. It was a pretty fast horse, but hadn't run for a long time and was dropping into beaten $5,000. And so Clay and I decided to drop on the horse and there was no shake. And she ran really, she won by seven. She runs off the screen. So we grabbed the horse, we claimed her uh, and, and she's run off the screen. And uh, I, I talked to Bobby for the first time and, uh, and this is the second trainer I've ever spoken to. Don, Don White was training for me, and now Bobby DeBona was. And, uh, um, you know, Bobby says, well, let's run her for 7,500. And I said, no, we're going to run her for 15,000. 
And he is, he's like, he literally almost dropped the phone telling me, you know, how long he's been in the game, how little I know. And, and in some sense, he was right. The right move would have been running it for 7,500. She'd have had a much bigger shot to win. But, you know, and, and for him, of course, he makes money off the purse, money off his percentage of the purse. It was, it was in his best interest and probably our best shot at winning a race. But she had run well enough that uh, we could run her for 15. And if they took her, we'd make a 10 grand profit, uh, you know, minus training, regardless of what happened in terms of how she ran. So we dropped her in for 15, or we didn't drop her in. We, we raced her for 15 a month later. And, um, you know, she ran decently, but didn't hit the board. And, uh, you know, boom, we suddenly had a, a you know, a $10,000 uh, profit. There was a shake for her. Uh, you take out the training. I think we cleared like uh, 8,500, something like that, 8,000, 8,500. And we were kind of off and running. And so, um, and so that's how... Uh, we kind of got it started. She actually became an okay horse once got once uh, once at the right level and became a pretty good turf horse. But that was the first horse Clay and I claimed together. We had another horse named See the Force that we had claimed who became um, our first winner together. Uh, we claimed her. She was our first winner together. And she actually broke down at the racetrack for us. So at Delaware Park, uh, she broke down. She broke her shoulder in a race. And we were told to put her down. But um, we decided to try to keep her alive. She was uh, out of uh, a mare called Critical Eye. And Critical Eye was a multiple graded stakes winner, grade one winner, a multiple graded stakes winner on both turf and dirt. And at the time was the leading New York bred money earner ever. And so she had a female family. We decided to keep her. Uh, we decided to you know, try to, to save her. Um, and she barely made it. But uh, she's become a broodmare to us and uh, Critical Value, uh, who, is by, uh, who is out of Sea the Forest, uh, was a stakes winner for us last year. So that's how, we, that's how Clay and I got together. At some point, you know, we, were, we, were, we, had, we had claiming partnerships together. At some point, we decided we wanted to buy uh, yearlings and two-year-olds. And we realized that, you know, that's, uh, with a claimer, you sort of typically claiming, you know, you're putting up. 10, 15, 20 grand, and you kind of know what you're getting. And so, you know, you may buy a horse for 20 grand. It may, you may ultimately be worth 10 or it may be worth 30, but you know, the, you, you get what you get, right? Some of them make money, some of them lose money. It's really hard to, you know, make it, you know, it's really hard to, to make a disastrous purchase if you're, you know how to get out early, right? If you claim a horse for 20 and it can't run or it's hurt, then you give the horse away, right? So that, that creates a floor for what you can lose. So where people really run into problems is where, where they don't retire or move on a horse or, or move on on a horse who's either slow or is, or is hurt. Um, in buying yearlings and two-year-olds, uh, it's a lot more risky. There's a lot more variance. Um, you have a real opportunity to get a nice horse, right? It's like buying a lottery ticket, a really oppor real opportunity to buy a nice horse. But you can also spend a lot of money on horses that will never win. And so we decided in doing this, we needed to do this with partners, that two of us putting up money, we'd go broke pretty fast. And so we initially started buying horses with a, a couple of our friends, and we ran under our own names. So it was Graham, Sanders, Petrangelo, uh, McKinney, Horace. That was our first group of, uh, first group of horses we bought um, for two-year-olds in training. And so this is our first partnership that we put together. Uh, I think we... we uh, 
put up $200,000. We kept some of that money aside to pay for bills, but we effectively got our friends involved to, uh, to lower the risk to us and allow us to buy more horses. And, um, uh, why we why we got out of naming why we got out of our ownership structure that way is we were we had one nice horse out of the group a horse called Allied Air Raid and Allied Air Raid became our first stakes winner in fact we met on one of the days that Allied Air Raid ran well Allied Air Raid was running as a three year old in the um, in the uh, Prairie Mile which is a prep for the Iowa Derby and it was in late May about uh, about this time of the year actually and. Um, our partners were all dispersed, some on vacation. And in Iowa, everyone who's a partner on the horse is required to be licensed, including those who own two or 1%. And so we had to track down our 1% partner from his vacation and have him get his Iowa uh, thoroughbred license. And he ended up paying more on licensing for the, for the horses than his percentage of the horses. So we realized that this made no sense. Furthermore, to get our money out of the, um, to get our money from the bookkeeper, we had to, uh, I had to get, uh, they had to uh, sign all their names in front of a notary, giving me authorization to remove the money. So it just became this giant bureaucratic headache. And so uh, uh, at uh, some point, Clay and I um, decided that we needed to run under a partnership and we came up with the name 10 Strike. Racing 10 Strike um, was the first winner of the Tennessee Derby in 1884. And the Tennessee Derby is he was held in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, not far from where um, I live right now at the, at the fairgrounds, which is where the Liberty Bowl is. It's about a mile away from where I live. And uh, at the time, uh, the Tennessee Derby was as big as the Kentucky Derby. Now, that says as much about how small time the Kentucky Derby was, more than how big the Tennessee Derby was. But that's where we came up with the name and uh, basically, it grew organically. Our goal has always been to, um, you know, to allow us to let it allow us to um, to buy more horses. So um, so we think of this as a way to get our friends involved and to buy more horses than we would be able to otherwise buy ourselves. And so, um, you know, we own a percentage just like each of our partners. Uh, we don't make any money on this unless our partnership makes money. and. Um, you know, but what it's allowed us to do is that we've been able to buy more horses. And from the initial group of four horses that we bought with five partners uh, in what was our first group, uh, we now have a group of 35 partners and have nine two-year-olds in what is our seventh group. Warriors Chargers, our fifth group that had five horses in it. And, um, and so each year we built up, each year we've raised more money, each year we've been able to buy nicer horses. We've also partnered with people this year. We have three horses of Frank Fletcher, who uh, is a, um, a North Little Rock businessman and uh, you know has the same goals as we do. Our goal is to ultimately win uh, the Arkansas Derby, uh, is to win big races at Oaklawn Park. We still think of that as our home track. We've grown a little bit. We're more national now, but uh, the core of our partners is still from Memphis, Tennessee and Little Rock and around Arkansas. And so for us, it's always been allowing us to buy allowing us to buy more horses letting people get into the game for a very small percentage um, we have people uh, who made the trip up to see Warriors charge run in the um, preakness who own a half a percent right and so uh, in the in the raise that we did for that group they put up twenty seven hundred dollars it's twenty seven uh, twenty seven hundred and fifty dollars to buy their half percent of uh, of Warriors charges group and so 
you know, we've gotten more people involved in the game. There have been people who are like-minded, interested in racing, love the racehorse. And it's just been fun to share that uh, with them. And, and again, these people have become close friends to us, right? Uh, uh, again, many of them are Kansans. We, we always have a big group that gets together at Oakland Park. And, uh, and part of it is just getting to know more people in racing. I've met more people in racing in part from ownership through people I own horses with, uh, and then through, uh, through handicapping. And that's something that, uh, you know, before all this, uh, you know, I just knew clay. Now, I, I think we've talked about this before. I don't even know if I know the answer to this, the warrior's charge being supplemented to the Preakness. Did that group have the money to do that already? Or did you have to do a cash call? How did you handle that? So we had the money. So when we do our raise, um, when we do our race, for example, in Warriors Charges Group, we, we raised $550,000. $403,000 went to pay for the horses. And then we have $150,000 left over that goes to, goes to bills. And so, you know, and the bills can add up. And so our, our goal is that hopefully we'll never have to do another cash call. And so this initial buffer, hopefully we have purse money that builds up that allows us to you know, continue to race without having to do a cash call. So luckily for us, Warriors Charge had won two allowance races and the allowance races at Oakland Park had big purses, right, uh, 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 that year. So Warriors Charge uh, um, won an allowance race uh, that had a $100,000 purse. He won that on Rebel Day. So he got $60,000 for winning that race. And then he won on the day before the Arkansas Derby, that was a $91,000 purse. That was $54,600. And so he pursed $114,000 just from those two races. And so from those two races, as well as the buffer, we had the money to do the supplement. Now, it was a big ask for our partners. And so, you know, when we're talking to our partners, we're talking about $150,000. So for our, even for a half percent people, you know, it's uh, it's what is that? That's $750. It's $1,500 per percent. But the important part of that is we were spreading the cost. If this were just me and Clay, there's zero chance we would have supplemented, right? Zero chance. But given that a lot of people held 5%, 10%, 1%, 2%, they were willing to make the jump. And I, th- I thought that we had a compelling case too to why we fit in the race, what it would do to our stallion value, what it would do to the value of the horse that made it a wise play financially. And so, um, and so I remember like we had, so after, after he won the allowance race the day before the Arkansas Derby, um, Saul had called Brad. And so we owned this horse in partnership with Saul Kuman. Saul, Saul Kuman bought in, in October, the horse was training so well. So even before its first race, Saul bought in for a piece and at that point, you know, it was like a no-brainer sell. Someone's buying a piece of a horse. We can take part of our money out before the horse ever gets to the racetrack, make a little money before the horse ever gets to the racetrack. No-brainer. Well, Solid called Brad after the horse won its allowance race the day before the Arkansas Derby and said, man, we should go to the Preakness. He ran huge, one by six. Let's go to the Preakness. And we laughed and we said, there's no chance we're doing something like that. We're taking baby steps. Uh, let's go to the undercard race. Let's go to the Sir Barton we're not going to get, we're not going to start doing stupid stuff. Well, I was in Kentucky after the Kentucky Derby for a Thoroughbred Idea Foundation meeting. 
And um, I was with Liz Crow when we were driving around looking at uh, looking at, uh, you know, some 10 strike horses, a lot of the homebred babies. And uh, we had already learned that Maxim Security was out. And then uh, we learned that Country House is out of the Preakness as well. And at that point, you know, I remember turning to Liz and saying, you know, we should we should run the Preakness. We can make this work. Uh, you know, we could split the cost. It's it's it's, you know, while no one would pay the hundred fifty thousand dollars themselves. A lot of people would be willing to play the small percentages. And here's why it works financially, uh, because, you know, we think the horse has talent, though it's going to be a weaker field. We might be able to get loose on the lead and steal it. And um, if we hit the board, we're going to break even. And if we win, the horse is worth an uh, extraordinary amount of money. We made we made ourselves as a stallion. It's worth the risk. And, um, and you know, uh, Liz and Clay sort of laughed, which sort of made sense that, that, you know, it was the, can we talk Brad into doing it? And Brad is someone who likes to run his horses, uh, you know, where they're two to one, three to one, six to five, three to five, the shorter the price, the better. So the idea of going from an then to the Preakness was, uh, was going to be a big ask. And so I remember just going and visiting him at the barn the following morning, trying to get the courage up to even ask him about running in the Preakness. Uh, and so, uh, um, you know, Clay and Liz and I sort of agreed that we do it if Brad agrees. And uh, I remember just, you know, sort of planning up, planning my pitch. I'd visited the uh, um, track side, the the uh, the Churchill Downs training track, and was talking to two of my trainers there, Jason Barkley, Matt Shire, trying to, trying to make the pitch to them. And they were, of course, uh, look, if Brad says no, we'll take the horse, but your pitch sounds convincing. <laughs> And so I went, to Brad, I went to Brad as like, I, I, I told him about like, look, our horse fits, our horse is, you know, Brad, so Brad first said, our, you know, uh, we saw Warriors charge gallop. He said, you know, his horse is doing tremendously. He's come out of his race really well. He's a monster, this and that. And I turned to him and said, maybe we're running in the wrong race. And then I, before you could even say anything, I went into why we should run the Preakness, why it's a legacy making race, why it's a race that will be in his obituary if we win the race why we can be we can be on the lead and might get a chance to steal the race that the track tends to favor speed um that this horse is just getting better and better that the big players aren't coming that we will help not hurt your other horse owendale and um he hesitated for a bit he he asked me if i realized that the horse wasn't uh wasn't nominated for the triple crown i said yes but let me handle that he said let's do it who should we get to ride and that was like, that was like, I was just, it was like elated. That was like, that was like winning the Preakness, just convincing Brad that to even run the damn thing. And so I just remember, uh, uh, you know, I texted uh, uh, Clay and Liz, a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, thumbs up and, and explosion emojis. And then uh, uh, at that point forward, uh, uh, you know, we had to talk to all of our partners and, um and they were all enthusiastic about doing it. And, and again, we had a great experience. We finished fourth, so got $99,000 back. But I think that it enhanced the value of our horse enough and the reputation of our horse enough that you could say that, that even though financially it, uh, it was a loss, that in terms of the exposure to our partnership, to our horse, in terms of how it affected the value of our horse, right? And the value of horses always fluctuates. So it's, it's hard to do but that we were net better off doing it. Yeah. I mean, like you said, it was, uh, you know, $1,500 for, for each percent partner. And at the end of the day, 
you know, I think that a lot of you know, your tickets to the Preakness might have cost more than what the partnership actually had to put up, you know, and well, it, uh, you know, it's funny. We had a similar decision uh, and you were part of this. Uh, was it the year before with Long on Value? Was that the year before? Is that Long on Value? Before? Yeah. yeah, Long on Value wasn't Breeders' Cup nominated, right? And so it cost us $200,000 to nominate uh, Long on Value for the Breeders' Cup turf sprint. And um, ultimately, he got hurt before we had to make the final decision. And our piece was not, you know, we have we own 80% of Warriors Charge. We only own 20% of Long on Value. And so Saul and uh, Steve Lehman were against the supplementing. I was for the supplementing under the same, under the same logic, right? I only own 1% of the horse. If I had to pay two grand, let's do it, right? You'd have had to pay yeah, a grand. Sure. Let's do it. Yeah, well, what, what, what could, uh, for a kind of experience like that, $2,000, $1,000, not a big deal. Um, and so- and they, flew. Um, they flew in that breeder. That was the one where, uh, that, was, uh, that was Stormy Liberal and, and World of Trouble, right? Yeah, and I do wonder. I mean, no one closed any ground that day, right? They did. They did fly. I wonder if we could have gotten up for third. Um, I don't know. It would have been interesting. In uh, would have been interesting in retrospect. But the horse, they were against it, and then the horse got injured pretty soon after that, and so it was never, 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 uh, um, never really in the cards. But those are. I mean, those are tough decisions, and, and obviously, it all goes back to nominating your horse. Um, I remember we got a lot of attention for supplementing, but it really goes back to us being idiots for not nominating in January, but in January we had a sprinter who hadn't broken his maiden. So who would have, the triple crown was the last thing on our mind. Are you nominating all of your, all nine from now on or no? Well, no, but we're nominating anyone who looks like they're even remotely capable of it. So we, we nominated something natural this year and he ran up the track at 87 to one in the Oaklawn stakes, but he was nominated to the triple crown, 600 bucks. We're not going to make this mistake again. Um, 600 so, in January or three-year-old year or two-year-old year? Two year, old yeah, year? So, no, three-year-old year. Okay. So, it, so the, the triple crown at 600 in January, it's 6,000 in March. And then it's, you know, it's certain percentage of the purse on the day of the, you know, on the day of the race. And so, um, you know, really up even until March, we up and even until the March deadline, we still had it in our mind. Hey, look, he's a Munnings, right? In our mind, it was a sprinter. It wasn't until he stretched out till he showed, uh, um, till he showed his talent. So I think Warrior Charge, obviously, um, and I, I told you this, and I, I told Liz, and I told Clay the same thing. I, I thought his performance uh, in the Oakland Handicap was just phenomenal, and you you guys almost made me look brilliant. I, I gave out a cold pick three on the Fox Show with uh, the two Bafferts and Warrior Charge in the middle. I was about to look brilliant. I was going to ask for a raise the next day. Um, that day for you, although he ran second, I want to transition to the other part of your acumen in this game as a as a horse player and a better. That day that he ran second, it was disappointing, obviously, with that. But you won an, uh, a handicapping contest that day. I mean, I obviously know your 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 history with handicapping contests. Tell us how you got into contests. Probably the same way we all did. How you feel about contests and how you won uh, the contest on uh, on Oaklawn uh, Handicap Day. Well, how I got in the contest is pretty much how a lot of us got in the contest. I mean, I think that the 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 you know I was a horse a horse player, uh, you know, at the time I was a horse player and, and fairly small time horse owner. And you know, my you know when I would bet 
horses over the weekend was a fairly not lonely experience, but uh, you know, I didn't, you know, they, I didn't go to an OTB or didn't go to the racetrack. Again, I'm in Memphis, Tennessee. There's nothing, nothing around me. So, you know, I had one buddy that I discussed the races with and races with, and that was clay. And um, you know, at, at around, you know, 2012, 2013, there was that horse players show, which uh, you know, I think helped promote the NHC. Uh, I also read a lot of Steve Christ who would blog about it. And, you know, especially when it was back at the Red Rocks. And so, um, you know, I became interested in trying to qualify, but the the hurdles to actually qualifying are, are fairly substantial. The, the online contests uh, have, are pretty expensive to play. Uh, at least at the time, I haven't played an online contest in years, but it's $165. They would give you something like a one in 75 or one in 100 shot. And to win those things, you had that the day of your life. Uh, when you'd almost certainly be better off cash betting the horses that you're selecting, or you know, there's a great degree of randomness, right? And just you know, picking the winner of eight to ten to twelve races. And so I got lucky. I mean, in my second or third time playing, and I'd sort of even almost come to the conclusion they weren't playing. My second or third time playing, I, um, you know, I, I had, <laughs> I, I don't know, first three or four races I had missed. I said, you know, I fuck it. Uh, I put in some random numbers. Uh, left, came back, and I had hit two bombs and was like near the lead. And I was like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. And so, uh, and and then I ended up, uh, you know, uh, playing a couple selections at one and somehow qualified for the NHC. And so then I remember telling Clay, and Clay qualified in the second shot uh, through, the, I guess it was nhcqualify.com. And so um, Clay and I went out to the NHC together. That was 2014. And, um, you know, it's just an experience, especially for the first time, you know, 700 people there, grand ballroom. I know that there are a lot of people who criticize the NHC, and I do believe there are ways it can be better. But as an as a horse players convention, there's an opportunity to meet people. And many or most of the, my friends in this game that I don't know from the ownership side, I've met through uh, the NHC. Um, uh, it's, 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 it's really incomparable. And so, you know, from, from going to it the first time and I had no success whatsoever, I really wanted to go back. The second year, again, I qualified online. It had got extremely, had an extremely good day. Um, again, it was only the second time I was playing online that year. It was a card I really liked. It was uh, uh, the, one of those uh, summative speed days. The reality is I would have made $15,000 betting had I been betting that day instead of playing the contest, right? So I won the contest pretty easily, but but I think of all the money I lost by not betting at the same time. But that, you know, that second time I went, I didn't know anybody. And I think by the third time I went, I, I had gotten to know y'all and, um, and uh, you know, qualified, you know, each year subsequently, mainly through the on, uh, you know, through the, um, the live money contest, which I much prefer and much have uh, fit my betting style uh, much much better um, on Oaklawn on Arkansas Derby Day. Uh, I just uh, um, hadn't been playing on these uh, um, online express bet contests. They've been having they had quite a few during the Oaklawn and Gulfstream meet. Uh, they I think it was like five hundred dollars entry fee with three hundred dollars going towards a contest bankroll and two hundred dollars towards a prize pool. With the prize being, you know, one of the prizes aside from cash being uh, the Pegasus contest. And I play in the Pegasus contest regardless. But, you know, I love the Arkansas Derby card. And I like the, um, you know, I like the fact that, that it would let you play all the Arkansas, all those races. And so I, I entered, 
uh, in the um, one of the uh, um, one of the divisions of the Arkansas Derby, the the Division One, the Northern Spur Division, as I would call it, uh, the the minor league division. I I just bet a straight try. I took all my bankroll, bet a three hundred dollars straight try on the doll, uh, not doll in Charlatan Basin and um, and uh, Governor Morris. So you know, tried to make. Uh, a lot out of a little. I, I don't mind smacking if it's you know. I don't mind uh, playing a straight try, even if it looks like it's not going to pay very much. So you know that turned the three hundred dollars into about uh, nearly five grand. And then I had an opinion on the uh, um, Trails End, which is that last race, the mile and three quarters race at Oaklawn uh, starter, the starter ten um, mile and three quarters race. It's my favorite race of the year. Um, it's a race that I've aspired to win. I finished second in the race in 2017 with Farah Kaley. Farah Kaley led every step of the way except for the final 70 yards. So, um, so uh, I did not, um, I did not have a runner this year, but my trainer did, and my trainer had laid out for that spot. So I liked his horse a lot, and then I um, sort of had a convoluted reasoning to like the eventual winner, Take Charge Euro, and um, I ended up betting you know, a handful of different bets, but take charge Euro came in at 18 to one and I had $400 on him to win to give me my total of 11 grand. So it was, uh, you know, I, so it worked out. I like these live money contests cause you don't, you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to make a lot of, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to grind it out. You can make two or three decisions and be right about those two or three decisions. In fact, I think the right way to play them is to, limit yourself to two or three decisions. The more decisions that we make, the more you grind through your bankroll, the more takeout will eat you up, right? And the less likely you are to be right, right? It's, it's uh, you know, if I can be right uh, a couple times on a card, um, you know, that's great. I can have a winning day. But um, if I can just take my best opinions and uh, focus those in a live money contest and, and play it very loosely, um, then I think that really affords an opportunity to win. I think that, 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 the two pitfalls that people fall into in these live money contests where they play one with scared money, right? They have to be willing to lose everything. They have to be willing to walk away with a zero. That's very hard to do. And I'm not very good at that either. I'm, I'm, I'm a loss averter. I I'm, I sort of have tendencies of a degenerate gambler. I don't like losing and I don't like losing days. Um, and so I will, I will tend to chase. And so in, in contests, you're, you're better off just going to zero, right? Just, just let it be. And then furthermore, in the live money contest, the more you try to grind it out, the more the takeout will eat you up. So go with two or three good opinions as opposed to trying to make, you know, 10 or 12, um, you know, 10 or 12, just sort of. Okay hey, man, I try to, I try to so narrow that, it to one. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's probably the right way. In this case, I had two opinions. I actually played three entries and my other opinions were wrong. But, uh, you know, in this contest, I sort of, uh, I had two opinions and ran with it. The other thing is, is, you know, it's one thing when I'm at the track or at the Breeders' Cup, but on this card, you know, even though we're in quarantine, you know, it's still a big day. Warriors Charge is running. Um, uh, you know, I still had my kids. I just can't sit up in my office and play the races all day. So I figured if I figured out my two or three spots to make my plays, then I just make those bets and, uh, uh, and can ignore it the rest of the time. And so I've tried to – I think it's harder – like in the Breeders' Cup or at any of those Keeneland contests, to be the guy that that you know is at zero after th- the third race, but ultimately it shouldn't matter whether you zero out in the third race or you zero out in the eleventh race. 
right? It's, it's still the same number. And I think it's, it's hard to do. Real quick, guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode. Obviously, really happy to have Marshall Graham telling his stories and his experience as an owner. Looking forward to transitioning now to talking about uh, him as a better and his, his, his life as a better. But speaking of bets, if you're going to be making bets anytime soon in the next couple of months, Keeneland Select, they're doing something really awesome. They're doing an in- initiative called Nourish the Backstretch. What they're doing is they're taking the proceeds from Keeneland Select in May and June, and they're supporting the guys and gals on the backstretch. At least 3,200 meals, at least 1,600 bags of groceries, and it's all going to go directly to them. And to be honest with you, they've already pledged this money, so everything that you can do on Keeneland Select will only help them recoup some of that. They'll look at extending it maybe even farther if we can get some good stuff working on Keeneland Select. So whatever you're doing, wherever you're betting, take a second, put in a couple picks, a couple plays through Keeneland Select, nourish the backstretch. So I think this is a, a great opportunity to transition to something that, that uh, you know, we've obviously had you on the show a million times. We've never gone down this path. And I think it's a, a very interesting part of, of uh, you know, of your story as far as being a better or whatever. But, and I've never even told you this before, but we were sitting at the NHC the first time, I mean, that time you're talking about, probably the beginning of when we started whipping Michael Baychalk in his table in the, in the, in the table bet. They've never beat us. They've never beat us. We're undefeated. But I think that was the first year. But we're sitting there and you were having a conversation and you said something like, uh, you said something to the effect of, well, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not a huge better. I don't bet that much or something. And someone around heard you that actually knew that was a little bit different. And they, they said to me when you had walked away, they said, don't let Marshall fool you. He bets just enough. And I was like, I didn't really understand what it meant at the moment. And then as I got to know you more, I started to hear more about your modeling. And it's something that you've never really been all that, you know, screaming at the top of your lungs about. Um, But I I did want to, you know, if you're going to be on the show, I wanted to at least ask you about it and see uh, what you would share with with everyone about how that kind of came about and kind of talk about it. Obviously, it slowed down quite a bit with just some differences in the game. But uh, how did that whole thing come about? How did you build it? In, in the heights of, of the game and, and anything you want to talk about the model? Well, let me, let me just start off by, I, uh, I was sort of doing some, some prep for our conversation yesterday. And I, I found, um, I, I've always been someone who's been very, uh, very anal about my record keeping as far as betting is concerned. I've always kept track of every bet I've ever made. And part of that is because, uh, you know, I'd like to know how I'm doing in the game how I'm learning, how I'm progressing. But the other part is I do have degenerate tendencies. And so, you know, I feel like it'd be very easy for me to sort of slip off the edge and and really go backwards if I weren't keeping very good track. And so I did find this file file I had made that basically had, uh, you know, how much I was betting and what my profit loss was from 2002 to 2011. And so, you know, it's kind of interesting to go back and look at the size of bets I made what I was betting on, what tracks I was playing, and kind of you know think about like like how different I was in terms of the way I approached the game. What I've always looked for is some sort of shortcut, and so um, and so uh, you know I've always tried to figure out are there ways to you know maybe arbitrage. I think one of the you know the first things I had had thought about or looked at was the Doctor Z system. And so, you know, maybe none of your listeners have ever heard of this, but in the 1980s, uh, Bill Ziemba um, wrote a book called uh, Beat the Racetrack. And it was um, uh, it was sort of uh, the same design 
the same philosophy of the book was the what on beat the racetrack was uh, uh, from beat the dealer by Ed Thorpe with the card counting system and the system to beat blackjack. And his system involved using information from the more efficient win pool to bet into the place and show pool. And so I read that book. Uh, you know, I started looking at uh, at uh, at different types of basic systems to try to to you know churn money without necessarily having to think a lot about handicapping. I love to handicap too, but I was also looking and reading about these different systems, and it actually became part of my academic research. So I wrote my dissertation on banking regulation, uh, real boring stuff. I got my first job at Rhodes College, really the only job I ever had. I got my job at Rhodes College in 2000, and we're evaluated 50% on teaching and 50% on research. And so, um, but our research requirements are pretty flexible. And I discovered that there was a huge literature on um, betting markets. And so I started researching betting markets and built a data set in 2002. I had a buddy of mine scrape data from TVG's website at night. It used to be that you could just go on their website and scrape data off of it. And so we got a pretty comprehensive data set to look at um, these betting markets and to study what what uh, is a, a big part of the um, uh, literature is related to betting markets on uh, the favorite long shot bias. And, and this persistent bias in racetrack betting is that, that the public tends to underbet favorites and overbet long shots. And it tends to have been, has, has been true historically, and it tends to be true outside of economics. And so this is a, um, a, you know, something that was discovered by a, a couple of psychologists in the 1950s. And it applies to other things that people underestimate, uh, overestimate the probability of like dying in a plane crash or getting struck by lightning, but underestimate high probability events. And so it's, uh, you know, it's thought to be something psychological as much as much as a characteristics of betters. And so, you know, in part, I looked at trying to arbitrage through the favorite long shot bias to do the Dr. Z method. I even got a Rhodes College grant, a $5,000 grant to, to study betting market arbitrage. And that turned into my, you know, in my mind, my most significant paper, my most significant academic paper publication, the Southern Journal of Economics. And so at some point in my sort of betting endeavors uh, in the early 2000s, um, I realized that you could arbitrage Betfair uh, and uh, the USB pools in Australia. And so I would take the odds in Betfair. I'd watch Betfair follow the odds on Australian racing. And the Betfair odds would move and would, uh, or a better representation of the true probability of, uh, of a horse winning than the US betting markets on Australia. And so all I would do is I would arb Australian races. And I used to play the the exact and trifecta pool. And despite the takeout being relatively large, over 20%, I was successful at betting Australia. And um, not only that, was I, you know, I would spend these late nights uh, betting Australia. I think, uh, you know, my kids were little, uh, they would all go to bed, everyone would be in bed, and I would be up from about nine to one watching Betfair. Uh, I would take the information from Betfair, put it in an Excel spreadsheet, and then it would determine my bet, bet, uh, to bet into the try uh, into the try pool, and that was my first sort of sort of arbitrage experience. I made money doing it, and furthermore, I I was playing on U Bet, and I got three million U Bet points, and so um, 
from those UBET points, I bought my first flat screen TV. I bought a Sony Vio, Vio which is the nicest uh, um, portable computer at the time. So it was, uh, it was, um, it was really fun stuff. And um, UBET eventually was bought by um, Churchill. And during that process, uh, there was a price difference between the UBET, the, the, uh, the UBET stock and what it would be given the, given the acquisition, what it should be given, given the act, what it should be valued at given the acquisition by Churchill. And so my brother runs a hedge fund and he had called me to ask if I knew anyone in the industry who might talk to him about this merger because they were going to buy a lot of UBET stock in hopes of the merger going through. There was a little bit of an antitrust concern with Twin Spires and UBET and what it would do to the ADW marketplace. And so we talked to someone in the industry named Ian Myers, who had run Premier Turf Club. And so uh, uh, in the end, my brother decided to go ahead and buy, um, buy uh, UBET, and they made their... They made a lot of money for their partners. And, um, you know, I was talking to Ian and, and Ian was out of business at this at that point. And I said, Ian, if you're ever interested in, you know, getting back in the business or if there's any, you know, opportunities you see, please let me know. Well, Ian, I was in about a year, Ian contacted me and talked about, uh, you know, starting an ADW focused on Hong Kong wagers and said there was a real market for people to bet on Hong Kong. And that that never went anywhere. But at some point, um, Later on, we did decide to start an ADW, America's ADW, very short-lived ADW. So my experience in the ADW business was a total disaster, but it effectively changed my life as well. So um, we started America's ADW, and um, it had we had no customers and very little content. We couldn't get contact content from the major players. Um, we had very few customers. Biggest customer was me. Um, to tell you something about how tough the ADW business is for an independent, an independent, we couldn't get any customers. And then if we had any situations where we made money from the racetracks, they would often slow pay us. So Clay and I, at that point in time, were playing the pick six together at Philadelphia Park. And we hit a couple nice pick sixes to where parks owed us 20000 owed the ADW, ultimately owed us. $20,000 and they were slow paying us, right? So, you know, in part, since I was the customer and hit the bets through his account, it wasn't that big of a deal, but we couldn't even get the money from the racetrack to pay the customers. Uh, um, and so it was kind of a hopeless cause. We never got any customers. We never got any content. Um, and towards the end of it, um, uh, you know, I did decide, well, you know, when we bet, it helps the ADW. And as a result of owning your own ADW, uh, we paid the track's host fee and we paid all our fees to the tote companies and to Robert's communication. But what was left over, we could just, you know, keep for ourselves. And so that, in essence, was like getting a rebate, right? So it, it, it was, it's really the way rebates are structured, right? The the um, ADW provides uh, pays the host fee to the racetrack that hosts the betting. It pays for all the different fees it has to pay to Tote, to Roberts, to TVG, to whoever else. And then what they have remaining, the margin they have remaining, some of that they refund to their best players in the form of rebate. Well, here I was, I owned my own ADW. I was too small time of a better to get anything more than you bet points when I was betting. I was never more than a fifty dollars to $75,000 a year player 
in the 2000s. And uh, I decided, I talked to one of, one of my, one of my uh, um, colleagues from graduate school, another economist who is a very good programmer um, who taught statistics. And I said, look, I've got a couple ideas and uh, why don't we try, you know, why don't we try starting something that could provide, uh, you know, make, would, could automatically bet certain scenarios. And so the first things we tried were very, very simplistic. So we did a version of the Dr. Z system. So we programmed in a version of the Dr. Z system, which is taking win probabilities and betting into the place and show pool. And then we uh, did what we called 50 bets. And horses that are prohibitive favorites tend to earn, uh, you know, a, you know, they tend to earn negative returns in the place and show pool, but the rate of return was negative 8% uh, instead of negative 20%. And the difference between what America's ADW had to pay in host fee and other fees would be less than that. So we could actually make money, even though those wagers would be net losing wagers. And we had to be careful because you did run into the problem of um, minus pools. And when you hit a minus pool, that actually is money right out of the ADW's pocket. And so you'd be hurting yourself. And so we put in a few things that prevented that, but those were our bets. We had 50 bets and we had Dr. Z bets. And so I remember we started with $200 in the account. Uh, it was a Thursday night in June, Thursday, June 16th, 2011. And uh, we let it run. The next day we woke up and there was $204 in the account. And we had made about $40 worth of bets. And so from there, we basically got started. We, uh, we had all sorts of issues. It was, uh, you know, this interesting experience that we would make changes and sometimes the code would be wrong and we'd just start betting randomly or we'd bet too much or, or too little. Um, we had at one point we're betting tries and tries and supers. And, um, every time, uh, the, the model would update and give us a new um, new horses to select. It would accidentally bet. So I remember waking up one night, checking on it. And at this point, we weren't betting a lot, but we made $4,000 worth of bets and our account was up $1,000. And we were like, it was like, it was a miracle because at that point we could have zeroed out. But um, we basically went from there to, uh, you know, that sort of rudimentary system to uh, establishing ourselves with a little bit of a portfolio of, of how much we could bet. So because we own America's ADW, we had an opportunity to bet uh, with, again, substantial rebates since we own the ADW. Well, America's ADW went under, we closed our doors. And so, but I had the, you know, sort of my betting profile that I could go to a handful of ADWs and show, hey, this is how much I can bet. And so then at that point, I, I, um, uh, I, uh, you know, we, we found, uh, new takers for our bets and, and we were off and running. Um, and just to show you the effect of rebates, right. I went from a 50, you know, I went from a 50 to $75,000 player a year to a $10 million player a year. That's a 200 fold increase in the amount I bet solely through rebates, right? If we give players a level playing field, if we give players an opportunity to bet in these pools, uh, at a reasonable rate, they can dramatically increase their handle, right? There's nothing extraordinary about what happened. It's just a byproduct of, of me facing a lower takeout. And that's something that's not accessible to everybody, right? And of course, rebates are a bad word within the game, right? And so they're rarely talked about, but, um, but they have a tremendous effect on handle. 
and a large percentage of our betting pool comes from rebates. Now, we're much more sophisticated in what we do now. Things like the Z bets and 50 bets no longer work. But um, we bet an extraordinary money into the betting pools, provided liquidity, um, and uh, it's given us an opportunity to win. And if you're a horse player and you're betting into 20% takeouts, you can have good days. You can even have good months, but you can't win, right? You can't win at 20%, right? But if we could lower the takeout to 10%, players could win, right? Players could have more winning months. More, more players could win and players who win bet more. And so that's our goal here. The, what rebates have done for me and what a lower effective takeout has done for me is it's allowed me to increase my volume by 200 fold, 200 times what I was betting before. Now, Marshall, like, so if we're, and, if uh, we're sitting at a bar talking to a horseman, uh, a guy that was the leader of a horseman's group or a racetrack operator, and you told them that, what would be their argument and what would be your answer to their argument? Well, their argument would be that, you know, not enough money is going into their t- pockets. This is a tough game. You know, everybody's got to make their money from the horsemen to the Breeders Association to the ADW to the racetrack, right? And that the pricing system is unfair and that the rebates that you get put you on uneven ground. The reality is the racetracks themselves make just as much money from me as they make from a better in a state that, um, you know, in, a, in a, a better who gets no rebates, right? So if you're betting and don't get rebates, your money's going to your ADW, right? Because I bet a lot more, right? Uh, The ADW gives me back most of what I bet. They hold on a small percentage and allow me to churn, allow me to bet more and give me an opportunity to win. And so I'm not necessarily taking money out of the horseman's pocket. I'm not taking money out of the track's pocket, right? I'm taking money out of the ADW's pocket. Now, why can the ADW afford to do that with me and not to do that for a recreational player? Well, they still have to devote money to development, right? They still have to devote money to, you know, they still have to, you know, in their, in their world, um, you know, make their bottom line, cover their opportunity costs. And so, you know, to give a $50,000 player a year, a substantial rebate is not worth the risk to them unless that player can become a half million dollar player. And so while ADWs have experimented with that, I think they haven't gone far enough, right? And I think that's where perhaps there's an opportunity. We think a lot about, let's bring in new players. Let's do a $250 bonus for a new signup. Uh, you know, bet your first 500, get your next 500. But what we're not thinking about is, hey, you're already betting through our ADW. How do we get you to bet more, right? What can we do to turn you into a player who bets a, a much larger amount of his or her money? And the way that becomes possible for a horse player is giving them the opportunity to win, right? And you can't win at a 20% takeout. And so if, if you know, ADWs would take those chances, reduce those margins, then I think they would have a better shot. Now, in, in, in my fantasy world, I want all takeouts to come down, right? I don't want it to be an ADW's decision to, we're going to, you know, we're going to bet that you're going to bet more. And so we're going to, you know, play games. We're trying to cut your rate to get you to bet more. I'd like to see all rates come down. And, and the only way to do that is to figure out a way for tracks and ADWs and off-track betting facilities and everyone to work together to bring down host fees, to bring down takeout, 
and to have that all come together. And in part, it's very tricky to model. It's very tricky to understand how that might work, right? For ADWs, for tracks, there's very little incentive for them to reduce takeout, right? Because they're making that amount of money on their recreational players and their mind is not going to come back to them. If, if they lower takeout on the recreational players from 20% to 10% or even the 15%, they believe they won't see that money back in the short term. They might not, but in the long term, they'll gain through churn, right? If your payouts are just marginally bigger, you'll start churning more money through the machines. As you start to have more winning days, you'll learn more, right? Uh, players who, you know, might have, come to the game and played for a, you know, had their one day at the track, they're more likely to have winning days. Uh, and winning days cause, cause more repeat visits, yeah, sure. cause people to bet more, cause people to lose, to, to um, uh, study the game more. All those things contribute to increased handle. Now, I understand this is a parimutuel endeavor, right? So you getting better hurts me, right? the public learning more. And I think part of what has happened, we think about like, how has the game changed? Um, you know, why is the game so different than it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Well, it's so different in part because um, a lot of casual players have left the game, right? A lot of members players have left because of alternative gambling. And, um, and uh, a lot of people who are recreational players are a lot smarter, right? 10 years ago, there weren't podcasts like this. There weren't, four or five or six different types of, um, of uh, speed figures for people to look at. There wasn't, uh, you know, great conversations about handicapping and, and uh, uh, insights on Twitter uh, or on different in, in social media. And so we're all so much more educated as horse players that there are many reasons why the game is just a lot tougher. But if we lower the takeout, that, that um, you know, that makes the game that much easier for everybody. Right, that shifts the curve dramatically so that a larger percentage of our players could be winners. But it has to be done in concert, right? The tracks have to work with the ADWs, who have to work with the horsemen to where it's a winning system for everybody. And they have to take this leap of faith that when they do so, that their recreational players are going to respond. And it's not gonna be instantaneous, right? It's not gonna be instantaneous. Um, and we face bigger threats than ever. Right. You think of the threats that we face uh, via sports betting, via casino gambling, where the takeout's just a lot lower. Um, you know, I read I've read a lot of books recently on sports betting. And I mean, the they would laugh at 18 to 20 percent takeout. And so, uh, you know, we need, that needs to be the starting point. Right. We can't even get to the point where I am because I had to have an established reputation before I could go say, hey, I'm going to bet X amount. and uh, um, uh, to get rebates, um, a lot of people don't have that ability, right? That they they don't have the ability to prove that they can bet more with uh, with uh, rebates, and so therefore they have to start the hard way. And starting the hard way involves facing twenty percent takeout. No, I mean I guess the thing that you know we've we've both interacted with and and dealt with and had conversations about is the disconnect between. Uh, the racetrack operators, the horsemen, and the better because I, I just it's I'm shocked at times. I think unfortunately I'm shocked on how many racetrack operators don't understand the wager. Um, horsemen's groups, uh, leaders of horsemen's groups don't understand the wager. They don't understand churn. Um, and I think that 
I think that the hardest part about this whole thing that you mentioned, the biggest obstacle that we have to get over is the unknown of how things would be if they lowered the takeout. I mean, so many of these, you know, I I remember we were at that uh, symposium and Mattress Max said that it's unfortunate that there's so many people in leadership positions in racing that are either, their history is either as a lawyer, who are very literal people, obviously, and, um, you know, accountants who are also very literal people. There's not a lot of marketing creative people at the top that are willing to take those leaps of, of, of faith like that you mentioned on, on understanding how this can change the game. And my fear is, is that that will always be our obstacle. And, and I, I hope that it's never our death, but I think it's always going to be our obstacle because um, – I can't remember the name, the, the technical name for these types of caterpillars, but I heard it in speech when I coached high school football. But these caterpillars are just follow each other around on the rim of a of a of a pot that has their food in it. But they just continuously follow each other around until they just die. They don't just get into the pot and eat their food. They'll follow each other around until they die. And I'm fearful that that's what this game uh, could be doing. Well, I, I think there's there are two important things. I think one thing I think is that's interesting is we were at the symposium and we were talking to um, uh, uh, the legal rep for one of the um, historical racing machines, and um, she couldn't verbalize the other side. When we asked her what the takeout was on the racing machines, it was like eight or nine percent, and she says we would never put it above 10%. And she couldn't say why. I'm like, why would you never put it above 10%? Right. And so people who do slot machines, they don't even, they understand that the churn is so embedded in what they do. They don't even understand how to express it. So in their mind, they would never go above 10%. We don't understand churn at all in horse racing. And so in our mind, we don't think about lowering. Again, I think what's happened in racing is we've separated out people into these two groups. We have our teams, we have our computer betters, and we have our major horse players who bet, you know, who are the who bet a lot of money, and we're going to rebate them, right? We're 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 gonna, you know, we we're gonna rebate them, and then we have a recreational player who uh, we're gonna make pay full price, and so we, we're engaging in price discrimination without realizing that the the players who are recreational players, many of them can make the leap to do this more seriously if they had the opportunity. It's such a high hurdle to clear. Now, when we talk about horsemen's group, the other thing that's happened is horsemen have been so concerned about slot machines, right? Their focus has been on slot machines and on state subsidies. And so it's not been in their interest to focus on, you know, their piece of the takeout or their piece of the hold. Right. Their goal is to maintain the percentage they're getting of the different machines. Right. So so they've gotten their eye off the ball and off an eye off what directly impacts their game. Right. The problem with the slots players, they're not a horse player. Right. And at some some at some point when we see and we see what's happening at parks, at some point this can happen anywhere. Right. And so, um, you know, I do remember thinking in December and January uh, Texas got a $25 million uh, subsidy for purses at Sam Houston. Historical racing was going to bump purses up at Turfway and at Churchill. Oakland was going to have giant purses. That things were never better for the game. And again, 
um, the COVID virus has exposed uh, the, the fragility of our model. And our horsemen uh, and owners have been so focused on, on, um, on the slot machines and not their core customers. And I, so I think that's part of the problem. They don't understand that horse players are their customers, that ultimately horse players are their biggest defenders, right? When we think about, um, you know, I think even lowering the takeout helps uh, uh, the image of Santa Anita because you, the more horse players you have, the more people who understand the game, right? And the more people who are out there supportive of, of uh, the horsemen and supportive of Santa Anita and supportive of the right, sport. And speaking out, right? speaking out so in I, terms of horse welfare. and um... Yeah. I mean, horse players love the game. I think that, that what's unfair is, is that we get this reputation as being cold calculating EV seekers. Right. But if you think about like, you know, I, I, I think about like Garrett Skiba and Garrett Skiba's frustrations with the NHC. Garrett Skiba did not have to worry about the NHC affecting his bottom line. He was going to qualify and it was never going to cost him a thing to qualify, right? Because he wasn't playing online contests, right? You've no longer played online contests, but you're still likely going to qualify, right? So it doesn't really, there's not the out-of-pocket expense for you, right, is minimal. But, you know, Garrett's concern is what it's doing to our ecosystem, Right, what it's doing to the online player, the newbie to our game, the people who've been introduced to our game, who it's costing them immensely, and that's the you know that's the same problem with the Rainbow Six. I'm not going to play the Rainbow Six on a non-force out day, right? I'm not going to play into a 44% takeout. It's preposterous, right? But you have people playing into that takeout, right? Who uh, you know are maybe enthralled by the 20 cent uh, take uh, the, by the 20 cent denomination. Um, and who are playing into it and who are just getting eaten up by the churn. And then when they force the thing out, they've done this less recently, but when Gulfstream has forced the thing out, typically they made the cards just impossible, full of, you know, maiden 25 on the turf with a lot of horses that haven't started. So they made it like an insider's type card. And then everyone comes in to pick away at the pool that the, uh, these naive people right. have built, and that's not good no. for our betting. No, ecosystem. and I worry. So I, I worry they try. They're they're looking for that. They're looking for that headline. They want that million. They want that person to win four million, so they can blast all over newspapers, and they think that that's going to be the thing that saves the game. Um, and uh, I think Pat Cummings, when we were when we were in, in I, mean, I want to say it was Pat, but it's like we're 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 trying to we're trying to get people to buy the stale bread on the, you know, on the, on the, uh, on the shelf. And it's, it's not, we have to take care of the people that we have in order to get people to come. You know, if you're a hotel that that has terrible customer service and you spend zero money on customer service, but you spend all your money on marketing, that money on marketing will eventually just go away because people come to the hotel they have a bad experience and they don't come back. They spread that word of how awful that experience was. And I feel like we're just, we're so focused. And I say we, cause I want to take, I, I believe that I'm a part of the system. So I want to say that I'm involved in it. I say we are so focused on what's right in front of us and there's no foresight. Um, no, I look. I, I agree with that one hundred percent. And I think that like what's worse about the rain, the, what's the biggest problem with the rainbow wagers? Already, we were 
we were, you know, newbies and recreational players are exposed to, to, you know, high takeout with no ability to get rebate. And now, you know, the rainbow is taking their money, right. Enticing them with, with this false advertisement of, you know, million and a half dollar guarantees, these big promotions uh, around it. And when it comes time to pay things out, everyone jumps in. And so the newbies are building this pool, which allows them to effectively have this subsidized wager on force out day, right? So on force out day, they can get a $10 million pool. They get their, uh, you know, $2 million chop, right? On what has been built up by newbies or, you know, if, uh, so I think that that's, you know, it's even it's even worse than um, kind of what we make it out. Right. And so I, I do think that. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I, so I want to ask you a little bit more about the Rainbow Six, but I also want to say something leading into that. And and and, uh, you know, um, you know, I consider myself a serious horse player and I consider myself someone who surrounds himself with serious horse players. You know, yourself, uh, Nick Tamaro, uh, Eric Bilek, Mike Maloney. Uh, John Nichols, anyone, I mean, the Matisse brothers, anyone I can think of people that are guys that are entrenched in the game and, and get involved. But I, I also come from, and I don't, my dad will never listen to this. So I don't, I don't feel bad burying him. My dad is the, the reason I take it so personally is that my dad is the person that would go to the, you know, he'd go to the ATM, he'd take out $140. I don't know why he does these weird numbers. And he'll go to the racetrack and he'll play 10 cent supers at this opportunity for this huge score. And he's the guy that would look up and see $15 million at Gulfstream Park or $2 million guaranteed. And he'd say, Jay, we got to play the, you know, what you, you got a ticket for this. And I'm like, dad, we can't, you can't do that. We, you, you have 140 bucks. We don't have an opportunity to try to do it. We, you're not going to hit it. You're not going to win the whole thing. You, we cannot build a ticket in which you can hit the whole thing. Like it's just not, and and it bothers me because I can think of so many guys that are on that first floor of your racetrack, wherever your racetrack is. You know who I'm talking about? The guys that got off of work, they're still dressed in their work stuff, and they come to the racetrack and they're trying to play with a hundred bucks, fifty bucks, two hundred bucks, forty bucks, whatever it is, and they're being misled and they're being drugged into this into this back room where we're all waiting, and. I just, it, it kind of disgusts me to a certain extent, but I also get so frustrated about the success and growth of this wager that in my opinion is dragging those guys into the back room. Why, why is it having the success that it has? Can you give me some answers? Well, the only, I have to think that horse players aren't that stupid, right? So there may be, there are naive horse players who are playing it. Like like the one thing, and I, I tweeted about this the other day, is that, that the first day of the Gulfstream Park, uh, day one after their last force out, so this is May 10th, they forced out on May 9th. On May 10th, they got nearly half a million dollars bet in on day one, which is insanity, right? That's There's no pool, right? There's the, um, if you're the single ticket, yeah, great. Right. But uh, but ultimately, there, there's there's no carryover. So you're betting into a 44 percent takeout no matter how you look at right. it. Right. And just to be clear right? for people and, that I'm hoping people listen to this that are wanting to understand more about it. Just to be clear. There's five hundred thousand built, you know, bet in and it's a 40 percent, 44, 44 percent effective takeout. Two hundred and fifty of that is going to be held. 
and only about 250 of it is going to actually be paid out to the people that were playing on that day. And that's where Marshall comes up with the effective takeout of 44%. So, sorry, carry on. Yeah, here, here's the the math is pretty easy, right? So there's the takeout's 20%. So that's 80% of the money is returned to horse players from that. But 70% is uh, paid back to those who uh, who hit six of six and aren't single tickets. And then the remaining 30% is if you have the single ticket, right? And so 100% is paid back if you're a single ticket, only 70% if they're multiple winners. And so 0.8 times 0.7 80% of the pool, 70% of it returned. 0.8 times 0.7 is 8 times 7 is 56, right? Move the decimal 0.56. So 56% return, that's 44% takeout, right? And so the only thing I can think of, unless you really work under the, the, the um, unless you really are, are, are running with the idea that horse players, there's a, a large segment of, of, Dumb, un, uh, not price sensitive horse players, or uninformed. Dumb is the wrong word. Uninformed horse players, and I'm not. I'm not sure that exists right now in the um, current environment. I think a lot of people who have AEW accounts are probably more sophisticated than your average OTB player, and so I think what's happening is they're rebating the hell out of that, right? Because it is illogical that it handles so much more than than Churchill Downs's pick six and Churchill Downs's pick six. Now look. I don't like jackpot wagers, but Churchill Downs does it the right way, right? It has a 15% takeout and 90% is returned to holders of uh, of uh, uh, holders of uh, winning tickets, where the, uh, and only the 10% is held for the single ticket, right? So the effective takeout on the Churchill single six is 23.5%, and Churchill's uh, opening day handle on the single six is like $75,000, and so. There's, you know, I'm always question Gulfstream Park's handle. I think that they have, uh, they really rebate their signal dramatically. So they have a lot of uh, big betting teams and computer players involved. And that's something that Churchill um, or Oaklawn typically doesn't have. When you, see, when you see Churchill's handle or Oaklawn's handle, you can feel pretty, pretty confident that they're getting seven to 9% of uh, that handle in host fees. They tend not to negotiate with that. Whereas um, Gulfstream, who knows, right? Who really Devil's knows? advocate. Uh, I don't believe this, but I'm just devil's advocate because I want to hear your answer because people that are listening are going to say this. But Marshall, the 20% uh, – I'm sorry, the 20-cent denomination gives me action. It allows me to have that opportunity at a big score. And, man, I've seen it a couple times where it pays really good. So, you know – is there why why can't I have this? Why can't I play this wager? Why doesn't it make sense? Well, I think there's there's two separate arguments there, right? The twenty cent denomination is you know is is one thing, right? There are ten cent supers that pay big, but it's not a jackpot wager, right? There are fifty cent tries that pay big, right? So we all the time see examples of huge payouts with low denominations. It's the fact that we've turned this into a jackpot, right? Um, and that it's, it's, you know, we've turned it into a jackpot and it is feasting on horse players in order to build a pool to force a payout. Right. I, I don't think, I don't, I don't think that the tracks want there to be one big single ticket winner, right. That's pulling money away out of what they would have made out of a force out. Right. Maybe they can use it in advertising here or there, but I think conventional pick sixes, 
right? Also generate large payouts, can generate carryovers. We've seen large opportunities that exist from conventional conventional pick sixes, from non, non um, jackpot wagers. And I think it's very rare that we see a force out generate any sort of payout. When they when you see a force out and there's $12 million in the pool, right? And they everyone thinks of the opportunity of what it could pay. Generally, the payouts are often disappointing. So, um, you know, I, I think the the minimums are a different thing, right? Um, I, I don't, I um, I have uh, conflicted feelings about the minimums. I, I, I do, I do like accessibility, but I'm not sure they were necessarily set in the right manner. Like I do, you know, look that your dad goes and plays dime supers. I love fooling around with the dime super. Um, you know, I think that with a lower takeout, your dad could have a lot of fun with the dime supers and might go to the track more, right? If you lower that takeout from 25 to 15%, your dad's going to win more money when he hits and show up more, right? So, you know, in some ways I like the dime super. In other ways, I'm just not sure it's the right, you know, it's, I'm not sure the denomination isn't too low, right? Um, should we be, you know, should uh, novice players be pushed to bet more complicated wagers like the Superfecta where professionals have a real edge in terms of con- ticket construction and handicapping versus, you know, win, place, and show wagers where they don't have as much. Can you explain the, the, the problem? I'm assuming you feel the same way. Uh, can you explain the problem with the lower minimums? Just in any wager in general, can, as someone who's modeled before, can you try to explain to people that might not be familiar with it why it's problematic for the ecosystem? So the... They moved to the 10 cent Superfecta in 2007. The first track to do it was actually Hinsdale Greyhound track in 2004. And um, part of the justification was for, for, you know, more novice players to be able to play at the lower minimum. Part of the justification for it was IRS forms, right? It used to be that, uh, uh, you know, if you hit over a $600 wage, you had to sign an IRS form and over a $2,500, they would take, uh, you know, they would uh, do withholdings. And so by lowering the minimum, there would be fewer withholdings and people could keep their money in the game. But the computer modeling aspect of it has made those pools so much more efficient. And the computer models thrive on lower denominations. If I'm playing the Dime Super via a computer model, I can upload, you know, thousands of super effective tickets um, built optimally. Uh, you know, I may be wrong about the way that, or my model may be wrong about the way it's handicapped the race, but based upon my model's opinion, it can build an optimal, it can build optimal tickets to where it can weight each leg, uh, correctly based upon the probability of, uh, the horse finishing in that position. And it can upload those bets instantly. In fact, uh, CRWs, and I'm actually not officially a CRW, so this part doesn't apply to me. But CRWs, uh, registered CRWs can um, can upload bets faster than uh, uh, than an average player. So that's an advantage that the teams do have that 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 regular players don't, and, and I think is really unfair, right? Um, that uh, that they can upload thousands of bets instantly, whereas I know you've had the experience of trying to upload bets on uh, on one of your ADWs and them going in at three bets per second, right? It can be exasperating, even when you're betting like the pick six using an Excel spreadsheet. Um, it can it be is, exasperating. It is awesome though when, so, when, when <laughs> it is awesome because in the first leg, 
if the one horse wins and you get shut out of the seven, eight, and nine horse combinations, then you actually kind of get like a built-in rebate. But yeah, it is it is it is stressful as, as all get out. No, I mean I got the my biggest pick score pick six score ever that Clay and I put together pick six the 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 first night that Long on Value won when he won the Mighty Bow. Um, it was my son's birthday. And uh, we were at dinner and I couldn't get the uploaded. I couldn't get my uploads to work. And so I have my laptop out at dinner. I've got my wife, you know, scowling at me to get my tickets in. We go get dessert at the Cheesecake Factory and I'm sitting in the car trying to get the bets in. I finally do get the bets in and we score out. But um, and so it all turned out being worthwhile. But it was a miserable experience, Um, uh, you know, all because, you know, it, you know, getting three bets per second. But um, So, you know, back to the Superfecta story, you know, I'm, you know, a model can bet and a a computer wagering sort of interactive model can bet and upload thousands of tickets instantly, right, that are optimally designed. Whereas if you go to the window and make your bet, or even if you're, you know, pretty savvy in making bets through your ADW, it's really complicated to wager your bet efficiently, right? And the Superfecta is a complicated wager. Right. It's, it's hard enough for me in handicapping to pick one, to pick the winner. And the idea of constructing a ticket that's efficient and that's weighted correctly is very challenging to do. A lot of people box superfectas or use the all button in a lot of places in superfectas, and that's ultimately inefficient. And so that creates a huge advantage to more sophisticated modelers and betters. And, um, uh, you know, I've actually done a little research on this. This, with the introduction of the Dime Super at Naira Tracks and at Churchill, after 2007, the Superfecta became uh, significantly more efficient, and um, it actually reduced handle. Because it, look, it's it's not obvious that reducing um, uh, from a dollar to a dime is going to increase handle, right? If you can imagine, you know, if 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 you have the decision, I have to go buy six packs of beer, or I can buy singles. By allowing people to buy singles, it's not going to they're not necessarily sell more beers. If you want only three beers, you're only going to buy three, right? Where in the past you'd buy a six pack. And so what happened is, is that Superfecta handle itself um, uh, went up, but it ended up taking away money from other pools. The similar trifecta pool lost money. And overall it had a net negative effect on handle. So, um, you know, you're wondering, I'm wondering if they were redesigning this, or if this it was uh, it happened in an era before, um, you know, before uh, after the three hundred to one uh, uh, rule um, with IRS withholdings, whether uh, we would go in that direction, whether it would have maybe gone from a dollar to fifty cents as opposed to going from a dollar to ten cents. So you know, look, I I'm going to start this question out because there's so many more things I want to talk to you about, but luckily I I've you're one of the the uh, handful of people I've anticipated having on a, a number of times. So the stuff that I don't get to now, we can, we can hit the next time, but you know, I mean, obviously I think takeout is, is, is one of the main things that we want to, that your will be your answer to this question, but what are the things if, you know, and look, and I think anyone who Googles you would probably figure out that, that there is a, uh, some political pedigree in your past. And so you've been surrounded by that. And so from a political standpoint, obviously that's what getting things done, getting initiatives uh, in place, getting things changed, getting things um, 
adjusted. It takes a little bit of uh, which, unfortunately, our government is lacking at the moment, where you can reach across the aisle and talk to someone and extend a hand and come up with an agreement that works for both sides. So I want to know what other two things you think would be very important to helping this game thrive. But before you get to those other two things, how what's an actionable plan for actually getting takeout changed rather than us talking about it in a in symposium, the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation writing about it in a white you know, in a white paper, um, us talking about it now on this podcast. Like, what's a real actionable step that could actually get it done. You know, does who needs to step up? Who needs to sit at the same table? In your mind, how, how would you go about getting that done? I don't know, and I've thought a lot about it, and it really sort of scares me because the the one answer that you would think would be the the easy answer is one track is going to have to experiment with lowering takeout and lowering hold. But the reality is that one track that does it right is Canterbury experienced. Uh, you know, it becomes a sort of model where, you know, Canterbury lowers takeout. They don't change their hold. When they're in a simulcast pavilion, the 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 OTBs don't want to carry Canterbury signal anymore because they're not making as much money off the signal, right? If you keep the hold the same for the ADW or for the OTB and you lower takeout, well, that's coming right out of the OTB's pocket or right out of the ADW's pocket. So Canterbury all of a sudden is no longer put on the big TV or is no longer purchased. So it sort of falls by the wayside, and we, we got the predictable And just to be clear, I said it, for, I said it a little bit less diplomatic. I mean, I'm going to say it a little bit more, a little bit less diplomatic than I did at the symposium. Who gives about Canterbury? And I don't, I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm sure there's a lot of horsemen there that work hard, but as a betting product, it's, it, it, is, it does not rank in the top 25% of the products that are available. So to use that as the measuring point, I think is a, is a mistake. It's, it's like saying, it's like saying that uh, changing the rules in, uh, in, in, in the arena league or the semi pro football league didn't work. So we're not going to do it in the NFL, dude. It's not the NFL. The NFL is the NFL. So try it there and tell me it fails. Don't tell me it, it failed because the Nebraska Silverbacks didn't, it, it, you know what I mean? It's not the same thing. No, I'm, I mean, you're absolutely right. But furthermore, even even for, you know, serious players, they weren't getting any any takeout relief. Right. And so it, it just, you know, the question is, if one of the big tracks took the leap and tried to reduce takeout and reduce hold, would that work? And I think they view the world short term. I have this fear that race tracks uh, and, uh, you know, I, I have this fear that the major um, players in the industry think that, you know, view a finish line to this game, right? And so in their mind, they're not thinking about how to grow it. In many ways, horse players are treated like smokers, right? That we're price inelastic. You can raise our price, but we're going to stay addicted. And then, uh, you know, we need to make plans for what happens when y'all die. And so therefore we are, you know, involved in slot machines or something that's unrelated to the game. So the I do think the only way for this to happen is for the – the major players in the industry, right? Naira, Stronic, Slash Magna, uh, uh, Churchill Downs, uh, to come together and to basically figure out a new order to where they figure out how to price host fees, how to, how to, how to 
uh, you know, how to make takeout, how to get a lot of the middlemen out of the bucket, right? It should just be uh, what the track that hosts the bet gets, what the where the ADW or OTB or the track that you made the bet, what they get, and a little bit of sliver for the tote fee, right? And to, they need to do that cooperatively and try to make something that works for everybody. Uh, and it's going to take involvement of the horsemen. Um, and it's really hard to see that coordinated effort happening unless the game starts to collapse, right? And so maybe the increased fragility in the game will will um, push them will push them to make those kinds of decisions. But I tell you what, I in December at the uh, symposium, you know, we're coming off. I think it was a pretty rough year of rate for racing in 2019. We had sort of the all the Triple Crown events. We had all the San Anita breakdowns and the tracks were working together. There was all talk about the tracks working together. And some of the things I heard were more frightening. And so when tracks work together, I get concerned the takeout's going to go up and the host fees are going to go up, not vice versa. And so, you know, I'm afraid that the only way for this to happen is for them to work together or one of Churchill, Magna, or Naira to really substantially lower takeout. And it's just hard to see that happening. Right. Hard to see that happening. Maybe sports betting is the is the thing that will push um, push uh, those entities to reduce takeout substantially. But it's it's hard to see. So I hate to be so negative about it, but I think it has to be done by the big players in the in the industry. I agree. And it has to and, be uh, it has to be like you mentioned, it has to be more than one, because I, I think it was either you or Pat that brought up the point that like that even in the Canterbury experience, even if you want to 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 not talk about. Canterbury product that all the money that was that was then returned to the players was spent elsewhere. So if I if I if I made if I if I hit a hundred dollar bet at, at, at Canterbury and I was supposed to get back a hundred, but instead I'm getting back a hundred and ten because the ch- the change in the takeout. I'm taking that ten dollars. I'm going to Naira with it. So Canterbury is not going to see the increase in churn because I've gone somewhere else with that money. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So what happened was is the recreational players, right, will go, you know, the reduction to Canterbury, the reduction takeout by Canterbury is going to end up just going to some other track, right, whose, whose takeouts remain the same. So it's, it's literally a net transfer from Canterbury to a different track. And then for serious players who get rebates, well, there's no change in the host fee. So they had no more incentive to bet Canterbury. And so it was a, you know, and, and, and then furthermore, like you're saying, Canterbury is a minor league track, right? And so while I do applaud them for experimenting, I do think it is problematic that the outcome has been, hey, the uh, players aren't takeout sensitive. I think if we've seen anything and if these force outs tell us anything is that players are very price sensitive. Remember the thing about a force out is a force out changes the takeout rate for every player in the pool. Changes the play, takeout for rebate players. It changes the takeout for recreational players. Everybody is uh, made better off and everybody is made better off equally. And even small uh, carryovers, even these small carryovers, uh, will have a, has a, have a substantial effect on, um, on the amount bet. Marshall, explain, explain to people that might not know how those pools turn into positive expectations. And then if you don't mind elaborating on how for a player who is looking at a seven, eight percent rebate on that bet, how it can almost be a 10 percent positive expectation for them to play in that pool. 
Yeah. So if you t- so if you take the takeout, uh, sorry, if you take the carryover. So let's say we have a hundred thousand dollar carryover. Let's say you know we get lucky and a pick five carries over, and we have a hundred thousand dollar carryover. The break even number for the pool to get to for it to be a break even, meaning a zero percent takeout, is going to be how much is in the carryover divided by the takeout rate, right? So if it's a hundred thousand dollars and it's a fifteen percent carryover, sorry, sorry, if it's a hundred thousand dollar carryover and a fifteen percent um, take out, we take a hundred thousand, we divide it by 15% and we get 666,000. So if there is $666,000 bet into this pick five, it'll be a 0% takeout. Anything below $666,000, it is a positive expectations play. Now, anything above $666,000, it's takeout, but it's substantially lower than it would be otherwise. And so that's a sort of simple math. And usually I, when projecting what a, uh, what a force out will be, it's usually carryover divided by takeout. That gives you a good idea of what it would be because typically we get to about 0% um, takeout. Now, there's been a lot more bet in some of these more recent force outs, but that's because, again, there's literally nothing else to do but horse racing in the last two months. But that's the way to look at it. And again, anytime you're below that, they're paying more money out than was bet into the pool. And so it just, it presents real opportunities. And, um, and again, if anything, players respond, right? So you'll see, you know, a, a pool that will have, you know, $100,000 in it, um, uh, have a small carryover and the next day have $400,000 in it, right? And so players are responding to this reduced takeout and it affects all players equally and affects players uh, regardless of their rebate um, as, as a net takeout change. So I assume that takeout would be your number one. Uh, what would be, what would be number two for you in terms of things that well, I, you I could do? Know, I don't know that I really have a ranking. You know, I do know that like there are things that like, if I think of like on my top 50 list, like Lasix and whips and whips aren't in my top 50 whip, probably not in my top 500 Lasix, not in my top 50, but, um, so there are lots of things to change. If I'm just sort of going to bring up two things that I think that people don't talk about and we're making no progress towards, um, if I would look at at real condition book reform and coordination in condition books. And this is putting my owner's hat on, but also my horse player's hat. The one great thing about Oaklawn and why I loved it more than any other race meet that, uh, that I've ever been, you know, participated in as a horse player is we had huge fields. And why do we have huge fields? Because we had no competition, right? That basically there was one place you could run, really two, but Gulfstream you couldn't ship to. Gulfstream in Tampa, there's a quarantine, right? So if you wanted to ship down there, your horse had to be in quarantine, like somehow the horse had coronavirus. So, um, and actually, I'm, you know, I say that I'm fearful that a lot of these tracks will re- reopen and they'll protect their own and not allow shipping, which is, I think, a bad thing. But right now, condition books are so complicated uh, that... Um, that horses are waiting around to run in particular races at particular distances. Um, and is that those races don't go trainers and risk averse owners aren't running their horses. And so, you know, I, I have horses that ran 15 times last year because they met a certain condition that always runs. If I, if, if you have an open nickel horse at parks, there's always a race for that horse. And so I have open nickel horses that ran 15 times. I have other horses that were routers, that uh, had conditions and that were a little bit more expensive, 
a $25,000 non-winners of three router, right? That horse might only run six times. Not because that horse isn't ready. Not because that horse is, is less sound. It's not because that um, horse needs more time. It's because there aren't races for those horses. And so the response has been tracks have made condition book conditions even more and more complicated. Non-orders of four, non-orders of five, non-orders of one the last six months, non-orders of two in the last six months. And Oaklawn is notorious for this. Oaklawn ought to have the easiest condition book. Oaklawn has two distances, right? Two turns, one turn. So maybe three, mile, mile, 16th, six furlongs, right? All dirt, right? They don't have any two-year-old racing. They have some restricted three-year-old racing, but they ought to have very easy conditions, right? Have your straight claimers, have your maidens, and maybe have a non-orders of two, and then have your allowance races. It's when you start getting into $30,000 non-orders of two in six months, right? You start excluding horses when you don't need to, which I, I think it's problematic and makes field sizes smaller, right? And, you know, by having non-owners of three, non-owners of four, and these different starter type races, an owner who is savvy is going to wait for a non-owners of three versus running in an open race because you have to be that much better to run in open races. If you got rid of non-owners of three or got rid of non-owners of four, right, uh, everyone would know where they were in the conditions book. They would drop their horses to the appropriate level. If my horse was a 30 non-owners of three, but now has to run for open, maybe he runs for open 20, right? And more races go, more races fill, right? The condition book should be simple and very straightforward. Um, so that's one thing I'd work on. I'd work if in the mid-Atlantic. Uh, they ought to coordinate the condition books uh, between Naira, between Delaware, between Laurel, between Parks, between Penn National, Um I know getting tracks to cooperate is very tough, but you know I've seen that race that, that I've talked about having the router that runs at 25 non-owners of three. There was a day um, this uh, last summer where there were four non-owners of three routes at the uh, mid-Atlantic tracks, and none of those races went, right? So all the way up from 7,500 to 25,000, there were spots at Delaware, Penn National Parks, and Laurel, right? We entered the race at Parks. None of them went. Right. So it's often it's very hard to get races. And that's, a, you know, that may be too off the uh, too uh, you know, too narrow. But I do think it, it, it helps field size. And the biggest thing, you know, th one of the things that people don't talk about enough, and this is back to take out in field size, is that the fall in field size is dramatically hurt handled because takeout is much more prevalent. Right. In the seven or eight horse field, it's a lot harder to play the try and super right? Versus an 11 or 12 horse field. That's a great thing about Oakland, a 14 horse field. You don't have to play the exactor or try. You can play bet to win, right? And so um, smaller fields, the effective takeout is much larger. We, of course, you know, heard all that debate over the, um, you know, over like, you know, head to heads at 15% being too high, right? You can imagine that's when we drop field size, it's really problematic. Um, the third thing I would look at, or the other thing I would really look at is I would think about the breeding industry and I would think about long run objectives in breeding, right? What's different about our game now, um, is that, you know, there's not enough incentive to race your horses, that there's a disincentive to race your horse if they're going to lose. So owners don't take chances. It takes a real, uh, sportsman as an owner to take chances like they did with Rachel Alexandra or to, you know, run a horse like Curlin on the turf to be willing to lose. We 
prize perfection so much in this game, right? We put on the pedestal horses who are undefeated, right? And I, I think it's just a different part of our game in the way we evaluate athletic competition, right? When we think about college football, it used to be enough to have a good season to go to a bowl game. Now we want an undefeated national champion. And that's so different than the way we viewed the world um, 50 years ago. In 1950, they had a poll on who was the greatest horse of the half century. Number one was Man of War. Number two was Exterminator. Exterminator is a horse that ran 99 times and only won 50 times. And well, only won, won 50 times, won an incredible number of times, but lost 49 times. Nowadays, right, we view, we prize perfection, right? We prize perfection um, regardless of whether the owners took a shot or not. And I'm, you know, I hate to sort of bring up the Zenyatta thing, but as much as I love Zenyatta and respect what she did, they didn't take very many chances, right? They ran twice in the Breeders' Cup Classic, but most every other race is in California, right? On her home circuit against other um, fillies, right? And, you know, I think that, that we need to figure out how to encourage horses, horse owners to take more chances. We have to figure, we should figure out how to encourage horses to race more. I think instead of having, you know, a, a, a um, horse of the year and eclipse awards by voting, maybe there ought to be a point structure, right? Because now you have horses winning horse of the year or undertaking campaigns where they run two or three or four times, right? Where they're too afraid to lose, right? And that's what we've, that's what we've lost compared to 20 years ago when horses raced 10, 12, 15 times a year. Um, now, people may say, well, it's because the breeding, the breeding's not the same. Well, let's change the incentives, right? If we change the incentives for breeders, then maybe they breed. Maybe there's the incentive to breed a more sturdy horse. Um, our races are getting shorter, right? There are a lot more, you know, there's been an increase in graded stakes at seven furlongs. Uh, there's been more of an emphasis on sprinting. There are fewer two-turn races. There are almost, you know, if you have an allowance filly who runs two turns, there are very few of those races. And there's, you know, basically... Uh, uh, only two stakes races for, is there two, there's only one stakes race, graded stakes for fillies and mares over a mile and eighth. So if you count mares, older horses, that's a Delaware handicap. Now that personal ensign's a mile and eighth. And so, uh, you know, why not, why not focus on route racing? Route racing is safer. The horses don't go as fast. Horses are less likely to break down, less likely to have physical problems. And so I think structuring the game, I think the jockey club, instead of focusing on 140 horse uh, breeders cap ought to think about changing the structure of the sport to encourage breeding a more sound, a, a more sound, a more stamina laden uh, horse that, that runs more. And by creating an incentive system so that horses are rewarded points to win category, you know, to win their eclipse categories where they aren't penalized as much for losing, uh, where you can't have a four horse, a four race campaign and win uh, horse of the year. Right. And where there's an emphasis on route racing, where there's an emphasis on racing, uh, you know, out of where you have very few maybe grade one races that are restricted to three year olds or restricted to fillies and mares. Right. So that horses will sort of race outside their, you know, race, you know, in open competition, which they do all the time in the rest of the world. Um, then I think that would, uh, you know, I think that would improve the, uh, the game. We like to see stars, but our stars race so infrequently. Right. We like to see. And that's the, the one thing that to me is very exciting about this year is that that they will race. They're still racing frequently, but they'll race against one another because they're going to be so few spots. Now, I don't want to volunteer for anything, but I'm I'm going to. If you're listening to this and you're a 
involved, you know a racetrack operator, a horseman's group person, please encourage them to listen to this. And I also want to tell you that that uh, Marshall, uh, Paul Matisse, th- these guys will give their – they'll sit down. They'll talk to you. They'll help you come up with creative ideas on how to, to make adjustments to what you're doing. We're not we're, – there's certain people that are just yelling at the top of their, their lungs about how things are wrong, but they're not willing to help come up with a, with a solution. Uh, these guys are, are willing to do that. So if you if you have questions, you want a deeper dive into what it is that they're doing and their ideas, they're 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 more than willing to share those ideas. Yeah, uh, I I mean I just want to say that I mean I I love this game. I mean every every dollar that I've you know every dollar that I've, I've made and 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 many that I haven't have been devoted to this game in some part. Um, is you know as an owner as a breeder as a horse player. And, um, you know, my thing is I love the sport and I want to see it grow and, you know, I want to participate in as many different ways I can. And so, you know, here's another thing that's important, uh, you know, as, as far as the effective takeout, um, as a horse player, it's allowed me to bet dramatically larger amount of money, but it's also allowed me to, to venture in the horse ownership. And so it's allowed me to own many horses. And that's all something that, uh, that has been given to me through this opportunity of lower takeout. I'm a byproduct of lower takeout and how lower takeout can affect the game. I bet a lot more than I did. And now I own horses and now I participate in things like the thoroughbred ideas foundation. Now I advocate for horses. I give the thoroughbred retirement. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think that there's a lot more people out there like me who, if you gave them the opportunity to be a winning player, would uh, find more ways to reach out and, and be part of this great game. On that, um, I have one of the f- most fun days I've had um, in a long time involved in racing was the day that we, uh, we were fortunate enough, myself, Nick Tamaro, uh, Travis Stone, were, were fortunate, and Clay Sanders was, was with us as well. We're fortunate enough to speak to your, your class, which I think most people have heard by now that you, yes, at Rhodes College, as an economics professor, you did teach a class on uh, betting markets, and, and and a lot of that class was based around handicapping. And you had us come and talk from different perspectives. Nick, obviously, talking about the buyer speed figures, and myself about just tournaments and betting, and then Travis about being a race caller. And and uh, th- that next day, on our way to Oaklawn Park, we went on. Uh, one of the most educational trips, field trips I've ever been on in my life, which was to go and see um, the dogs, dog racing and going to see the dogs and seeing the uh, some dogs that you were involved with and some, some fun um, situations. They're so well treated and they're so, they're like pets. And, and it was, I was very pleased because I think like many, I just thought what everyone else thought. That that whole situation, which is unfortunate, because it's probably what people think about horse racing, that unfortunate that idea that it's like, oh, that's kind of sad, but that they're treated well. Yeah, I mean, I love I love dog racing. It is very sad to see it go. Um, you know, I, I I think the the Florida vote surprised people, but the anti dog racing people um, were very well organized. And look, I think that if you don't if you don't see racing and, and you own a dog and and you know i knew you know I, when i realized that dog racing is in trouble is when i'd start you know start getting on airplanes and people would be flying with their dog or people would be telling me that they're too busy to own a 
you know, own a pet dog, much less have kids. And so, you know, it, it's a, um, you know, the way we view animals is just very different than the way we viewed animals even a decade ago. And I think dog racing has made a lot more strides than horse racing has in terms of, of animal, in terms of animal welfare retirement, their breakdown uh, rates are, are, are uh, minuscule. Um, uh, you know, and, uh, I mean, dogs are very sound animals. Uh, they race frequently and then there's a hundred percent pet out, um, hundred percent retirement. Now they have a lot of things working for them. It's very easy to retire a greyhound. Greyhounds are great animals. If there's no, you can give a, away a, a dog, uh, giving away a horse is still a hard thing to do. They're not, you know, there's a, a less of an active market for people who want horses and, and horses, uh, you know, they're not, very few people can take horses unless they have land to put the horses on. And so, you know, I was drawn to it in part because, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's what's here. It's right across the river. When I first moved to Memphis, uh, you know, and, and had the opportunity to, to bet the horses, I would go over to their, um, to, to their simulcast facility and then would watch the dogs. Uh, you know, eventually I met some people and, and was able to, to own race dogs. And, uh, um, you know, it's just to me, it's very sad to see the sport go. I think it's very much a lesson for our game because, you know, while you hear about that animal welfare activists killed dog racing, ultimately dog racing died because they had no fans, right? So no one was betting the dogs. Southland used to handle 800,000 night in the 1980s. So they used to have huge crowds there, standing room only. There used to be uh, traffic getting across the Mississippi bridge across the Mississippi bridge that connects Memphis to West Memphis to go see the dog races. But once the casinos opened, all those players disappeared. And that's been true across the country. Wonderland Greyhound track in Massachusetts. They were the dominant political player in Massachusetts, um, not Suffolk Downs, not Plain Ridge, the harness track, right? It was, um, it was Wonderland. And so the dog, dog racing initially did, you know, would do handle, that was equal to, to some horse tracks, but you know what ended up happening is they lost their fans to casinos, and um, and you know they just disappeared, right? And the animal welfare thing was the final nail in the coffin. And I'm afraid that dog racing will be gone in a couple of years, and the greyhound breed as we know it will disappear. So that makes me very sad. Um, you know that was a fun day. Y'all came and taught my course. Um, I think uh, you know it's a fun experience teaching a class where. Uh, you know, you spend part of the day handicapping a race and, uh, you know, it, it, we had the OTB experience of, of all of us making our selections and then, uh, and then watching a race in class. Um, I was uh, shocked and then, how many of your students showed up to the dog track that night. I, I mean, I thought like, oh, there's like three sickos that'll show up. There's like 20 of them. They were all there. You know, and the thing is, I don't know whether, you know, I've taught 40 students, uh, I've taught 75 students. Um, the two semesters I've taught the course, it's a half course. And look, we do do real economics, finance, psychology. There's quite a bit of literature that, that I can relate to betting markets, but ultimately we do handicapping as well. And look, they may not become horse players right away. I mean, you remember where you were in your early twenties, you graduate from college, you get a job, right? You don't have a lot of disposable income. You don't have a lot of time. Right. And so, um, but my hope is that at some point they'll, you know, uh, all, you know, at some point they'll, you know, pick up on the game again. 
uh, they'll be able to jump right into it because they'll have some past knowledge and they'll run with it. And if that can can help, uh, you know, create future horse players, maybe future horse owners, I think that's an exciting thing. Um, you know, when I went, when I go in there and teach the class, the students know literally nothing. So it's starting from day, you know, starting from day one. They don't have a clue about odds or anything. And so, um, and that's, you know, somewhat of a hurdle we face with our game. But I, I also tell them, look, you know, you bet random numbers, you bet silks, you bet jockeys, you bet the color of the horse, right? Here's your expected return. It's one minus the takeout. We hope to improve on that, to give you a little bit of uh, some of the tools that you need to understand, you know, to take a look, objective look at this puzzle and to try to figure out and problem solve and come up with an answer and a way to attack it. And that's, you know, kind of, I think that what brought me to the game, what brought you to the game is the solving of that puzzle. Um, and that's the, the joy I hope to impart to them and that maybe in some, in some point, um, you know, they will revisit it and, uh, and, uh, you know, become horse players like us. And again, also teach them a bit of economics as well. <laughs> no, I mean, of course, it, it's, it's, there's a great lesson to be learned about, uh, like you mentioned about, about these markets and really understanding, um, being able to find predictors. And, you know, I, I think that the skills that you have as a horse player would transition very well to the financial markets, understanding trends and where things are going and how the public's, how the public's opinion can affect something and how it can, you know, overvalue or undervalue something and create opportunity. I mean, it's a, it, you can apply it to anything that, that pertains to value. No, absolutely. It's a lot of, it's about decision-making. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, we do some economic modeling. We do a lot of statistics. Uh, you know, I spend a lot of time. I love the tote board. The tote board is just the market. Right? It's just the public collectively discovering prices and we're discovering prices of these assets, which are horses in a particular race where we get paid in outcomes. And so it's like a financial market with a starting point and an end point where the public establishes prices and do a, does a damn good job at it. And we're just hoping to do a slightly better job than the general public. And so um, it's one of the more fun things that I do. I will teach the course again in spring of 2021. I'm not quite ready to go public with it. I, I gave it strong consideration um about taking it more public uh um uh, uh to a broader audience but uh look there's a lot uh it's a lot easier teaching students who uh if i say something stupid um i won't get called out for it than uh then bring it to the big stage uh of a broader audience but uh you know as i teach the course each time i learn more about what i should emphasize and what i shouldn't and um and um you know i, I I learned more about it kind of really affects my handicapping. I try to read on a different subject each time become more, more familiar about a part of the game that I don't know, know much about. And, um, and it's a real joy to teach. It's one of the, the best teaching experience I've ever had because I'm introducing to something new. I have a very captive audience and, um, and it's a subject I know a lot about and it sort of forces me to organize my thoughts and uh, you know, present material and try to, to really get them thinking in a, in a different way to think than spitting out answers where we know the answer, right? And when you make a bet, you don't know the answer, right? We, when we make a decision and pick a horse, we don't know what the outcome is going to be, right? And that's unusual. When you teach a college course, usually there's an answer. 
No, that's what's beautiful about the game, and it's 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 why we fell in love with the puzzle that we have. So, um, Marshall, I appreciate you taking the time. I, uh, um, you know, I've, I've been fortunate enough. The first six interviews I've done have been people that I have a, a personal relationship with. So I always end it like in this like weird sappy way. Eventually, I'm gonna like go with someone I don't know and I'll just say like goodbye or whatever. But I, I genuinely appreciate your friendship. Um, I appreciate uh, just you know the the everything that you've done in terms of, of being a great friend, but also educating. And, and, uh, it's, uh, I feel like you're, you're one of those people that I feel like being friends with you makes me a smarter person. And I'm, and I, uh, and I'm thankful for that, but I also am willing to take your, your thanks. I'm listening. If you want to thank me for, for, uh, being undefeated with long on value. I mean, I've never lost a race as an owner, so, um, I'm listening. Yeah. We- We've got to get you in the more horses, right? We've got a I mean, you're two for two. We could uh, two for two with a with a grade one, right? Two stakes in the grade one. So we've got to figure out how to get you more involved in ownership. Look, I appreciate what you and Pete have done. Um, you know, I have been listening to you much longer than I've known you, and uh, uh, you know, it's it's great. We talk about how this game has gotten more competitive because people like you and Pete are out there, um, you know, teaching horse players, promoting the game. Um, and, uh, you know, that's ultimately what it's all about. So again, appreciate everything. And thanks for having me on. Thank you, Marshall. Marshall's not kidding guys. He, he really does care, loves this game. Any questions you have, anything that he said that you want more information on, I encourage you to reach out to, to Marshall Truxton stables on, on Twitter. Um, if you, if you can't find him, you know, holler at myself or Pete, we'll send you in the right direction. Uh, but if you're a racetrack operator, a horseman's group, uh, a trainer, wh- whoever, and you have more questions about what Marshall's talking about. He wants this game to thrive. Uh, he's got the same interests that you have, uh, but he just kind of understands that betting side and, and understands how those things work together and some of the changes that you know we could all deal with in this game, maybe use in this game. So if you have any questions, make sure you reach out to him. Marshall, I want to thank you for taking the time. Uh, it's obviously uh, uh, two and a half hours of your day is is not easy, even during these times. And so uh, we appreciate you sharing. Look, I mean, I think the theme of this this episode is that, you know, there's a better way to do things. And I worry sometimes that in this game, everyone has their own little corner and they just stay in their corner. They 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 hoard their piece of the pie. And, and anytime there's an opportunity to make the pie bigger, their fear is that they are going to somehow lose their portion. It's going to affect them. And unfortunately, it just has everyone in their own little corners and their own factions uh, you know, kind of sitting there hoarding uh, all of their pie. And so I, I just, you know, I continue to to hope and aspire that conversations like this will lead to uh, people taking chances and uh, looking at some reform and some realignment and some change. Um, and, and so, you know, hopefully uh, and eventually that will continue to happen. And, and like Marshall said, I, I hope that it doesn't take uh, rock bottom uh, for us to start to work together to build up. I, I hope that there's a different way and that that, that can get accomplished. So um, like I said, long episode. I try not to rant at the beginning. I'll try not to rant now. I want to thank you guys for listening. I want to thank you for the support uh, for the show and also for the shows, uh, all the shows we have on the network. I encourage you, like I said at the beginning, to subscribe. I mean, Apple Podcasts, the little purple thing on your uh, iPhone with like, I don't know what that logo is. It's like a circle with a who knows? Anyways, you know what I'm talking about because that's probably how you're listening to this. Make sure you subscribe, uh, set notifications. If you like a show, retweet it, uh, tag us, interact. Let's talk about it. Um, I want to thank P. 
PTF for whatever he does. I want to thank Drew Coatney, our business manager. If you have any questions, reach out to Drew. I want to thank Naomi for her show, Matt for his, Spencer for his. If you haven't checked any of those out, uh, same thing. Subscribe to those shows as well. We are going to be on Fox Sports Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. So make sure you check us out. I, I'm not on Thursday and Friday. I think Thursday and Friday, you'll probably get you a little little uh, Wolfie, a little Maggie, a little Lafitte, a little Michelle. Uh, who else? Maybe a little Andy. I am not on until Saturday. So I'll be on Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. So we'll be on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. So make sure you check us out there. That's the only place to, to watch Churchill Downs other than your ADWs um, or if you got a Roberts account or whatever. But uh, either way, even if you're not home, which you should be kind of for the most part, turn on your, your FS1, your FS2, and just leave it there for your cats and dogs. It helps with ratings. I appreciate you guys listening. We'll see you next week. Saying, but I like is new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche. There's five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now you'd be surprised.